Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Rick Levine about the meaning of the planet Uranus in astrology. Uh, so, hey, Rick, welcome to the studio. Welcome to the studio for a second time. We had a little bit of a Uranus uh, um, transit, did we not? We did. This is attempt number two to record this episode, and we literally we started recording uh, about an hour ago, and then uh, thirty seconds, I think, into it, uh, the power Pop. cut off in the entire building, and Saturn was actually right on the ascendant in, in Aquarius at that moment, and we lost power uh, for about an hour. Yeah, completely. Everything just went absolutely dark, like like a Uranian, Uranian lightning strike. It We couldn't have planned it better or worse. Right. So maybe I'll put like an out outtake maybe at the end of this episode or something like that. Absolutely doable. So people can, yeah. can see that because that was really brilliant. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sometimes when you're doing the astrology and you're talking about the planets, like sometimes you, in, you invoke the planet. You do. And in fact, the power came back on as Jupiter hit the ascendant. Uh, it just blipped on just slightly. And then when Pisces began to rise, Jupiter's domicile, then we were able to begin recording again. The timing is just crazy. Yeah, I love that. So in this episode, so this is part of my series, ongoing series on the the meaning of each of the planets in astrology. And um, we're going to read through some passages from different astrologers. We're going to talk about the history of the planet and its discovery, since this mm -hmm. is the first of the outer planets. We're also going to read some passages from astrologers from the past and how they talked about Uranus to get some context about how astrologers have talked about the planet. But not very far in the past. Yeah, we're only going to go maybe 100 or 150 years in the past, because uh, that's as far as we can go when it comes to Uranus, which mm -hmm. is only discovered a few centuries ago. And then we're going to use that as a jumping off point to sort of riff on that and talk about the meaning of the planet, as well as maybe some combinations with other planets as well. Right. Yes. Yeah. So you've seen the other uh, episodes that we've done on the planets? I've seen a couple of them, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, well, I thought you would be a good person for the planet Uranus because you actually have Uranus rising in the first house, right? I do. It's um, definitely in the first house. It's about 10 degrees off the ascendant, but it is the first planet up. And on top of that, I have an Aquarius midheaven. Mm. And on top of that, I have four planets and the North Node in the 11th house. So even though I am an Aries, I often introduce myself as an Aquarian, and yes, definitely I identify with Uranus. Okay. Do you mind if I show your chart? Absolutely not. I asked you ahead of time, but I always like to make sure. So here's your chart. Um, what's your birth data for the uh, audio listeners? April 6, 1949, and that would be in the Bronx, New York, and it's 8.32, and it's 8.32 a.m. I don't know whether... Did I have that right? It's too tiny. Some places have 829 because that's what I had for years, but it's close okay, enough. I've got 827. Yeah, it's it's actually 832, Okay, which makes a difference of less than a degree on the ascendant. Um, well, nonetheless, I feel like a failure by having your birth time wrong, and I apologize for that for that ahead of no, time. No, it is published everywhere because I actually thought this was my birth time, and about three or four years ago, an old birth certificate surfaced. What? After how many years of practicing astrology? 40, 50. Oh, wow. That's wild. Okay. Well, that's my worst nightmare, some astrologers' worst nightmare. At least it was the same you know, within the range. Oh, it was within five minutes of right. earth time, which meant a degree on the ascendant, and none of the other planets changed noticeably, obviously. Okay. So you didn't have like a complete breakdown? No. Okay. No. Um, so your chart, just for those with the, the audio listeners, you have 
uh, 14, 15 degrees of Gemini rising, and Uranus is also in Gemini at 26 degrees of the same sign, right? Right. And actually, in the corrected version, it's 16 Gemini rising, mm. so Uranus is 10 degrees off the ascendant. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are pretty good Uranus accolades then in terms of being my 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 astrologer to talk talk with about this planet. And the other thing is is that Uranus is um uh is sextile to Saturn. Okay. So that gives me a little bit of authority perhaps or fake authority. <laughs> nice. I'll take I'll take that. Um otherwise you've got a, a Aries stellium up there in the 11th whole sign house, 11th quadrant house as well. Yes. Okay. Uh but moon in Cancer down there in the second ish, and Saturn just barely in Leo at twenty nine Leo. Yeah, that's right, twenty nine fifty Leo. Like it's almost it's it's an almost an Aquarius. I'm I'm sorry, it's almost Virgo, but it's retrograde. So it's like don't make me be a a, a Saturn in Virgo, right? Uh, and then Jupiter in Capricorn, which I also have. So I'm a fan of that placement. I yeah, I'm always puzzled over the idea of. Um, of that being in its just slightly to your left. Okay, uh, I'm I'm always puzzled about that being you know in um, you know opposite its exaltation, um, you know in its fall. And I love my Jupiter and Capricorn. It's a saving grace in my chart. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, same. Same here. All right. So let's get into talking about Uranus. Talking about the planet Uranus. Yeah. Um, so first off, here's a little. Illustration of Uranus and also the glyph or the symbol that, for the most part, has come to be used for Uranus. There is one variant glyph that's sometimes used more in European countries, but I think even there, this glyph is is really started to take over over the past few decades. I yes. feel like, yeah, I, I, this is the glyph that is most widely used for a while. The other one was in more usage, and I love the fact that we can see here clearly that Uranus, like Saturn, is a ringed planet. Mm -hmm. And um, and that was kind of shocking when we first realized that, um, but but yeah, and you know the glyph of Uranus um, in the Ron Davison discussion of the glyphs in his book Astrology, he talks about how a lot of the glyphs have the cross somewhere in the glyph, hmm. and the cross represents the material world, right? Matter, matter, that, right? The cardinal cross. And that with Saturn, the cardinal cross is elevated, and we have the curve that backwards S off the bottom. But with Uranus, the cardinal cross is contained within what he calls the pillars of good and evil. Mm. In other words, there's the extreme opposites that are somehow containing um, the um, the material universe, and the whole thing is poised above the you know the sphere of potentiality the the circle so yeah it's a it's a cool glyph I like the glyph of Uranus yeah that's something I'd like to get into do an episode on at some point is the symbolism of the glyphs and how that's been interpreted in modern times I think I talked to Alan Oaken about it a little bit because this was the first book where I read about that sort of theory mm -hmm. and he mm -hmm. goes into it in one of his books but mm -hmm. um, that would be a good episode so with this planet we have to do some historical background because. Um, and maybe we should start right there because Uranus was the first of the newly discovered outer planets after you know three four thousand years of basically a history of like Western astronomy and history of science right. where we only had the seven traditional celestial bodies or the seven traditional quote unquote planets, which includes the Sun and the Moon, but also Mercury, Venus, uh, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. 
so the seven traditional planetary bodies, eventually on March 13th, 1781, um, this new planet was discovered. And this was actually a big deal um, because it completely changed our understanding of the of the solar system in some ways. Yeah, it, it actually is a huge deal that we'll come back to in, in a few minutes mm -hmm. because it, it was more than just changing our perception of the solar system, the, the outer world in which we lived, but it also changed our perception of, uh, of reality in general hmm. because it was the first planet that was discovered and considered a planet that we could not perceive with our five senses. Right. And this began a very dramatic and powerful shift that isn't talked about much because we live in a world now where almost all scientific research occurs in areas of the universe that were invisible to the um, untechnologically aided senses, right. and Uranus was the was the lead planet that began that that march, and it was very significant. It still is right. So it was discovered um, using a telescope by William Herschel in 1781. So it was the first like planet discovered where you needed a piece of technology to see it. Um, because it's so far out and it's so dim that uh, you know, for a long time in ancient astronomy, all you had was the naked eye. So exactly. ast astrologers slash astronomers would go out every night for generations and observe the sky and write down what they saw. And this was the sort of interchange between astronomy and astrology in the ancient world. Um, but fast forward all the way to the 18th century, basically, and um, these new technological innovations of telescopes are allowing astronomers to observe things that they hadn't ever observed before. Right. And that even actually began, but didn't have astrological impact, even in the days of um, Galileo, mm -hmm. where he was the first human to observe uh, the fact that, that uh, Jupiter had satellites or moons going around it. Mm -hmm. But that didn't impact astrology the way the discovery of a new planet did. Yeah, people ask about that sometimes, like why aren't moons of planets integrated in astrology? And the answer is that it's because they're so close to the planet that in an ephemeris, their location is effectively like the same, basically. So yeah, and there may be something that that would lead to in some sort of you know analysis that would not be based upon zodiacal position. Right. But then again, if we were born on a space station circling uh, Jupiter, then the location of not only the four what are called the four Jovian moons, but I don't know how many of them are discovered now, 20 or so, mm -hmm. um, they may all be of importance. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the people ask that question also all the time, like what happens when people start being born on different planets? And part of the answer is that you have to create a completely new astrology relative to that location because yeah. astrology always operates relative to the location of the observer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that will be fun at some point. So technology, and that's part of our first entry point into understanding what Uranus means, is understanding how it was discovered and understanding that it was discovered, it was only discovered partially through the use of technology. And that gives some basic insight initially into what it actually started meaning astrologically or in a symbolic context. Yeah. And you know, it's most people who know the story of um of, of Uranus's discovery point out that it was discovered at a time in history 
that was between two arguably uh, most important revolutions, uh, the American Revolution, the foundation of the United States of America, and the French Revolution, both of which were in some ways the revolution against an autocratic Saturnian uh, royal rulership and replacing it with um, with with a government of the people. I mean, this was like a novel idea. Hmm. And so the connection of Uranus to the idea of independence and revolution here is is significant. But there's another thing that's also very significant, and that is around the same time we had the French chemist Anton Lavoisier, who is credited with discovering oxygen. Now, on the surface, it's like there's no connection, but there's a very fascinating connection. Lavoisier was the first president of the French Academy of Science. And what he discovered when we, we, we learn in school, he, would, he discovered oxygen. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you had been alive at that time, what he discovered was that there was something, there was something that the flame consumed that was real substance that we couldn't perceive with our naked eye. Sound mm. like a familiar theme to Uranus? Mm. In other words, it used to we used to believe that the flame burned and it just, you know, consumed air. Um, in fact, the word I think was phlogiston was the Latin word for that which burned in air. But it was Lavoisier put a flame in a bell jar, covered it, and weighed it. And as the flame self-extinguished, something was consumed because the flame went out and the jar weighed less. Hmm. And he concluded there was something there that we couldn't see. And now, of course, we have a table of chemical elements that has some 115 or 20 uh, elements that most of which we can't see. Hmm. And so, again, the, the discovery of Uranus begins a part of the human evolution that moved us from a world of, that was limited by Saturn. What you see is what you get. Right. Um, that's it. If, if you can't perceive it, it's not real. Yeah, there was something out there. The mystics knew that there was something else. There was something magical. There was something. But now, all of a sudden, the invisible became part of the scientific domain. And that is very significant in understanding the timing of around the Uranian discovery. Right. So Saturn is like the last visible planet and so it tends to sometimes get associated with the, some physical or material type things. That which is like concrete and that which can be seen with the naked eye. Um, but then once we get to Uranus, we're in this weird intermediate stage where it wasn't discovered until somebody viewed it with a telescope. There are some like rare instances where there you are. can see it with the naked eye, yep. and that mm -hmm. should be stated because that's probably relevant as well. This weird fact that it kind of is in this intermediate space almost, like in between, because once you go past Uranus, to Neptune, for example, there's just no, no viewing way. that with the naked eye whatsoever. So that's another step up in some sense. And apparently Uranus was viewed actually. There were some like star maps and stuff where they accidentally they saw Uranus and, and marked it as a star, not realizing that it was actually a planet. Right. And that's initially, I think, what William Herschel uh thought it was was a star, but then and he wrote it, it down. Moved. It, it, he came back at some later point, and the star had moved, which stars are are not supposed to do. Yeah. That's, that's why we call them fixed stars in astrology. Yeah, you know, it, it's it, it. That's all true, and that's all intriguing. Um, but as you were talking, I began. I was also thinking that that the whole the discovery of Uranus and the use of technology 
really is a very basic part of the Iranian influence, and that is the future, that is technology, it is innovation, mm-hmm. it is the extension of our thinking on beyond Saturn. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the, um, in the Hellenistic um, philosophy, um, life itself has to pass through the gates of Saturn in order to begin its journey and its descent into the earthly realm. Is, is, is that accurate? Yeah, in some of the philosophical schools, there's this belief that the soul descends through the planetary spheres and it picks up properties as it goes through each of the planets until eventually it incarnates and you're, you're born into the material world on Earth. But then when the person dies, the soul is said to ascend back through the planetary spheres and to give back those qualities back to each of the planets. So I think it's very significant to understand, again, the importance of Uranus, because Uranus is the first inclination that that we as astrologers began to get that physical death is not the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because previously Saturn was that ultimate gate out beyond Saturn. There was nothing until you got to the fixed sphere of of, of fixed stars. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden there was something else. And 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 I don't think we moderners can quite grasp the idea of living in a world where Saturn had been the outward circumference, the outward bound, um, the limit of human consciousness for millennia. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, in one afternoon, it's like like the lightning strikes, Uranus the Awakener, the awareness of, no, this place is three times bigger than we thought. Right. That's huge. I'm three times bigger, meaning that there are three Saturn cycles roughly in a Uranus cycle, that you know Saturn being roughly a, a under thirty uh, year cycle and Uranus being an under ninety year cycle, more closer to eighty four. Hmm. But it's still this the, the length of of movement of of, of transition of process uh, on Earth went from twenty nine and a half years to some eighty four years. Right. Yeah. Well, and also at that time, you know, you mentioned because one of the things that comes up is like. That astrologers had never had to do before, for the most part, is figure out what a new planet means and what is your <laughs> right. what is your access point for even like starting to figure that out. And one of the things that eventually developed, um, especially later, but um, that, that's relevant here that you already mentioned is what sort of things were occurring around the time in the world in general and in terms of just the human population that were like new developments or that were unique developments that characterized that moment in time. And so you mentioned a number of them. So, for example, the culmination of the Enlightenment period, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, but also uh, you know the sort of scientific revolution was already ongoing at that point. But also the Industrial Revolution, and just thinking about you were mentioning Saturn, and one of the things that made me think about is just how much things had been very much the same in life for centuries. Technologically speaking, yeah. like there were advancements and developments, but they tended to happen a little bit more slowly. They were incremental, not yeah, quantum. <laughs> yeah, because all of a sudden, once Uranus is discovered, and we hit the time period of the Industrial Revolution, like technology just starts growing by leaps and bounds until we're at the point where we're at, you know, today, where things are just crazy compared to only a few centuries ago. Yeah, I, I, and and I think again the the connection with Uranus. To technology in general, I mean, let's not forget that this is also around the period of time of the first kind of delving into 
the relationship between electricity and uh, and nature uh you know benjamin franklin actually i don't think it was him i think it was um i think it was his grandson who actually went out and flew the kite mm. but the point is that until then no one acknowledged no one knew that that uh, that lightning was electricity mm. and around that same time i think it was galvani who discovered that you could take a dead frog sorry if this offends anyone um, and you could apply electricity to two points on the frog's leg, on a dead frog's leg, and it would twitch as if it was alive. Mm. And the connection that the nervous system is electrical, as is lightning, these were huge breakthroughs. But again, they occurred around the discovery um, of, of Uranus, which we will get to in a bit. It turns out to be really electrical in its nature. Yeah, which we discovered today by our own experimentations <laughs> right. at the beginning of this episode. So I wanted to take a little passage from Richard Tarnas's Cosmos and Psyche, where he's talking about um, some of the stuff that was happening culturally in terms of the world in general around the time of the discovery of Uranus. And he says, <clears throat> the championing, championing of human freedom and individual self-determination, the challenge to traditional beliefs and customs, the fervent revolt against royalty and aristocracy, established religion, social privilege, and political oppression, the Declaration of Independence, and the Declaration of the Rights of Man, Liberté and Egalité, the beginnings of feminism, the widespread interest in radical ideas, the rapidity of change, the embrace of novelty, the celebration of human progress, the many inventions and technological advances, the revolutions in art and literature, the exaltation of the free human imagination and creative will, the plethora of geniuses and culture heroes. So that's part of what he's emphasizing because he focused very much on like the cultural in Cosmos and Psyche, like cultural trends, and wrote like a precursor to Cosmos and Psyche, which was the, the passion of the Western mind. And that was just tracing the development of human thought. So for him, seeing all these things happen and sort of contemporaneous with the discovery of Uranus yeah. really informs you more than anything about its nature. I, I, I agree with that, yes. And I think that the the list of the things that, that Rick actually uh, delineates in that uh, some of those are things that we'd already brought up, but they're very, it, it, that is what Uranian energy really is. Right. Or one aspect of it anyhow. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So one of the things that happens, there's, there's a few discussion topics, just circling back to that question of how did astrologers even begin to approach figuring out what Uranus meant? And one of the issues, so one of the things we want to talk about a little bit, I know you want to talk about, is the mythological issue, because that's often taken for granted that the mythology of the planet oftentimes these days in the past two decades becomes people's main access point for figuring out what the um, astrological significations of a right. new body mean. But I think, in fact, going back, there was much more of an empirical focus where it seemed like astrologers were sitting down and starting to put this new body in charts, both in natal charts and also looking at it with timing with things like transits. And saying what happened or what, how, what happened. this person like, yeah. Yeah, and so there was much more of a, what I want to call more of like an empirical uh, approach to figuring out what the new planetary body meant. And, and, I, that, and, that, and that methodology continued with the discovery of Neptune the following century and then Pluto the, uh, the early 20th century. 
And certainly in our time as astrologers, in my time as an astrologer, I've certainly seen it with bodies like Chiron and, and the exploration of what does this really mean? Yes, it has a name, but what does it actually mean in practice? And even in more modern times, uh, the work of Henry Seltzer and other people with the Kuiper body objects and the, you know, th you know things like Eris and, and those objects. But it's the same thing. We, we, instead of just going back to the ancient mythology, which we were handed as a complete package with the Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, right. now we as astrologers actually look at these um, objects and in a way we backward engineer them trying to figure out what what is their impact? What is their relevance? What do they mean? Yeah, although I want to push back a little bit because I feel like um, with Uranus, there's definitely more of an empirical component. With Neptune, there's more of an empirical component. When it came to Pluto, I feel like the astrologers started using, started relying on the mythology more than they had up to that point. And I feel like in the past few decades, like that's the first thing that people jump to. For example, with the asteroids. Um, in invoking the name and believing that there's a synchronistic correspondence between yeah. whatever name was given to the new celestial body and that there being an assumption that that name will match what its astrological meaning is to some extent, so that that's like an assumption where most astrologers assume that it's always been the case and so that that should be the first access point. And I feel like astrologers are leaning on that more than they did with the discovery of, of Uranus and Neptune. I, th I think you're right, but I also think at least I've observed by reading some of the earlier material on Uranus, in particular Neptune and Pluto, is that when something new is discovered, we tend to look at its worst manifestations. You know, we tend to, I mean, Neptune was, there was nothing positive written about Neptune at mm. first. I mean, at least, you know, largely speaking. Mm. And now we think of Neptune as the planet of, you know, imagination and spirituality and so on. And the same with, with Uranus. It was originally considered to be a disruptor. And it is. I mean, yeah. Well, it is a disruptor, right. but it's also, you know, the brilliance of that breakthrough, and right. and there's there, it's it's ingenuity, innovation, innovation, right. and and so I find it interesting that we 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 seem to look for the worst things. Also, Pluto. I mean, Pluto, as it was discovered, you know, was the period of the rise of mass fascism in in Europe mm. and and other. I mean, it was the you know, early '30s, um, difficult period of time. Right. Um, but now we look at Pluto as the basis of what we call evolutionary astrology. Hmm. I mean, and and again, I'm not saying that Pluto isn't th those things also, um, but um, but we look at Pluto as the planet of tr you know transformation and 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 evolution. So right. I think it's an interesting trajectory. And Uranus was the the vanguard of this whole process. Yeah. Um, so and one of the things is that the idea that like I said, there's a synchronistic correspondence, and because the naming is just happening by astronomers. Astronomers, for the most part, are the ones naming these celestial bodies, and the name given. Sometimes there's like reasons for it or like different motivations, but sometimes it's a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we could have random. ended up with what we call Uranus is named George. Yeah, that's one of the funniest <laughs> things to me is that the discoverer William Herschel he originally tried to name it after like the the king at the time. And so it was like George's star. So it's literally almost yeah, named but George. But the French would have nothing to do with that. <laughs> right. So the French started calling it after Herschel, the discoverer, which is, again is a f another funny name. So it was either going to be George or it was going to be Herschel. Uh, but then eventually, I think there was a, a German uh, academic who named it Uranus, and that stuck eventually. Yeah. 
So, but that brings up a question though, because I know one recent astrologer, Sotarnas, for example, has argued that the mythology of Uranus doesn't actually match um, Uranus very closely, but instead he's argued for a few decades now um, that the mythology of Prometheus actually yes. matches the astrological meaning of of Uranus better, and that's something you that's something you want to talk about a little bit, right? Well, yeah, just I I think it's important to understand again that we are not tied automatically to what appears to be a random naming. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting that, I mean, you look at the asteroids and, and I mean, as we know, there are asteroids named just about anything and everything, albatross, saxophone, yeah. you know. Beer. There's an asteroid yeah. beer. Yeah. And, and, and it's kind of crazy the 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 synchronicity that we see when we look at these randomly named objects. Sure. However, um, we no longer are tied to just taking the traditional mythology and just going with it. Uranus has given us maybe the freedom or the independence to break free of that and to actually look at what is this doing? How is this working? What is the mechanical and or um, a physical and or metaphysical um, interpretation or application of these, of these planets? And mm -hmm. that is a break from the past. Yeah. Well, and I think I, I wanted to bring that up just because I think it's important. Because one of the one of the implications for me, like Tarnas argues that Prometheus is a much better myth for Uranus and is more evocative for what it means in astrology. But part of so the conclusion that I draw from that is partially a critique that maybe just taking for granted the mythology of the body that was named by some random astrologer, maybe that is not the best primary access point for understanding its meaning. Like maybe that's Okay, and you can gain some things from it, but maybe that shouldn't be our initial first and primary like building block for understanding the planet. And I would argue that it really wasn't when it comes to Uranus and Neptune that the that astrologers figured out their meanings quite independent for the most part of the mythology of those planets. Yeah, I I, I would tend to agree, and yet I would also say there is some pretty um, self-referentially uh, consistent magic. That Neptune was named Neptune, mm. <laughs> and that Pluto was named Pluto. Right. I mean, there, there is, and yet, at the, the by the same token, I think what you're saying is absolutely true. I think that we really need to back up from what we've been handed through mythology and look at that as one aspect of it, but really look at the, you know, what is going on with these planets. So before we move on from this point, yeah. what were, was there anything else you wanted to mention specifically from Richard Tarnas's work? Um, his book was called Prometheus the Awakener, and that was actually one of his first astrology books, right? Yeah, yeah. and um, this is not quite as much about the, the connection to Prometheus as, as it is just a really interesting um, – so he's writing, I examined the natal planetary positions for – uh, Promethean figures. And he was talking about in a previous section of the book um, about Freud um, being a Promethean figure. These are um, um, people who are 
intellectual revolutionaries. You know, Prometheus, as we know, um, stole fire from the gods and gave it to to humans. Well, what is the myth of? Can we, for those that don't know, I'm or, not sure. I can. Okay. I'm not sure. I'd be qualified to do the whole myth. Okay. Well, that's good enough. Then it was the, it's the the one the guy that stole fire from the gods and gave it to humans, and then he was punished for it. And then he was punished for it. Okay. But 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 the point here is that so so Tarnus is saying I I, I examined the natal planetary positions. Um, for Promethean figures, for example, I checked at once the case of Percy Bysshe Shelley, since he was so explicitly associated, even identified with Prometheus. Uh, he wrote a, 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 an epic poem called Prometheus Unbound. Okay. Um, and um, and found that um, Shelley was in fact born with the Sun and Uranus in close conjunction, and 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 he goes. He basically says. He looked at chief protagonists of the scientific revolution, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Descartes, and Newton, since these men all appeared to be unambiguous representatives of the Prometheus archetype in both their intellectual character and their cultural role. Upon checking their planetary positions at birth, I found that every one of these five was born with Uranus in a major aspect to the sun, well within conventional orbs. And, and he goes on from there, but that's the significant piece, that, that there was this connection between scientific revolution of, of, of you know, we forget that one of the things that, that Kepler did was that Kepler was the first human to extend human thought into the divine proportion mm. uh, with, with quantification. And so in a way, it was almost this kind of like stealing fire from the gods. Um, we knew the planets went round, but Kepler gave us tools to think the mind of God and understand what the laws, what the mechanics were of these moving planets. And so Tarnus relates Uranus to these Promethean efforts. And there are, I mean, you, you, you look at the list of people who would be kind of um, Promethean characters who in some ways were associated with revolution or technological change, um, you know, the, the list is, is, is quite long. But mm -hmm. even people like Freud and Jung, both less scientific, but more from a consciousness standpoint, um, you see that again and again and again. Okay. Um so let's see. Before we move forward, I yeah. want to. Why don't we just read Tarnus's list of significations? Usually, I go chronologically, but I almost feel like maybe we should read what he says about it to get a baseline. Well, actually, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna back up. Sorry, this is I'm gonna do this on the fly. Um, instead, I want to make the other point I wanted to make, which is sort of arguing that there was more of an empirical basis for understanding Uranus. And one of the reasons I think this. Is um, there's a great story in Patrick Curry's book, A Confusion of Prophets, uh, subtitled Victorian and Edwardian Astrology, talking about uh, kind of the intermediate period of astrology after the decline of astrology in Europe in the 17th century and before its full blown revival in like the 20th century mm -hmm. and late 19th century. So he has this story uh, about this astrologer named John Varley, and I want to read it. Um, really quickly, he opens his entire chapter on John Varley with this because it's always been such a not just a charming story, but an insightful story about how astrologers were actually starting to figure out the new planetary bodies uh, after they were discovered. Got it. All right. So Patrick Curry says, 
It is the morning. This is a very long story, by the way. So it's only like a page and a half, though. So he says, It is the morning of the 21st of June, 1825. In his studio, one of the several rooms he had leased in the great Titchfield Street in London's West End, the artist John Varley is going over his calculations for the day yet again. At 11 o'clock, he calls for his son Albert. Varley gives him his pocket watch, telling him to take it to a watchmaker's in nearby Regent Street and have it set precisely by Greenwich time. Greenwich time. When the young man returns, his father is still pacing up and down the room. Finally, Varley remarks, I can't make it out. He explains to his bewildered son that there is an evil aspect in his horoscope that day, which comes into operation at a few minutes to noon. The problem is that the planet menacing him is Uranus, which, having only been recently discovered, he says is not yet properly understood by astrologers. His reading of the aspect has revealed only that the danger will be sudden and serious. Therefore, he has already decided to forego his morning's appointment and stay indoors. But whether the danger is to me personally or to my property, he concludes, I cannot tell. Twelve o'clock approaches. Varley becomes still more restless and his son more worried. At a few minutes before noon, he sits down and says, I feel quite well. There's nothing the matter with me. Could I have made a mistake? And reaches for his papers and a pencil. At that moment, there's a cry of fire from outside. They run out into the street only to discover that it is their own house that is in flames from a fire at the piano factory next door. Varley's response is delight and satisfaction, (laughs) and to his son's consternation, he immediately returns to his desk to write a quick account of his discovery. By the time it is all over, Varley has lost his home and all of his property, none of which was insured. More importantly, however, in his view, he has verified both the precision of his methods of timing and the evil potentialities of the new planet. Meeting Varley later, the painter Copley Fielding asked if the loss was serious. No, he replied, only the house burned down. I knew something would happen. So that that brilliant. Is, that yeah. is the story of John Varley um, from Patrick Curry's book. And I think that's really funny, you know, to whatever extent that is true, it gives me some idea of how astrologers were trying to understand this new body by putting it in natal charts and seeing, you know, what other planets it was aspecting or connecting with, or by looking at it in terms of timing, you know, through transits or or who knows what else. And as a result of that, they were drawing conclusions after repeated experiences and experiments with it in their own lives. Which is what they do even today. Right. Yeah. 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 Which is straightforward, and that's basically fundamentally sort of empiricism, a sort of scientific empiricism um, by looking at things in practice as opposed to, let's say, you know, drawing a conclusion through abstract, either philosophical or through through myth- mythological means. Right. And, and as you read that, I got this picture of, um, of Varley as being a character, I, I think maybe one of the best personifications of the planet Uranus in modern media um, is Doc in Back to the Future, the right. professor. Yeah, Christopher Lloyd. Exactly. Yeah, and and John Varley kind of had that. So what if the house burned down? And man, this is amazing. Look what I'm figuring out. <laughs> right. I, I mean, it's that same kind of energy of the mad scientist. Yeah. Who maybe is not mad. Maybe the world 
around the person is mad and that mad scientist, I mean, you don't ever know in Back to the Future whether Doc is truly crazy or whether everything that he's doing is really, he's really doing it. Yeah. And that's the thing about about Uranus is that it's on that edge. The the eccentric genius archetype. Yeah, very much. Um, all right. So let's get into some significations. For sure. Video viewers, here's just some pictures of Uranus. Um, this is one from NASA. Uh, and here's another one. This is from Voyager 2. So Uranus appears because of the way it reflects light, it appears as this sort of cyan. Sort of light bluish green color to us, basically. Yeah, it has a very high reflective um, surface. Yeah, I think the word for that is the albedo. I believe is the astronomical word for its reflectivity. Okay, I'll take your word for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So the first astrologer, we usually start out by going through in previously in the series all the way up until the last planet through Saturn. We were able to go back and do the second second century astrologer Vedius Valens. Um, we can't do that. So I went back right. only about a century to um, one of the earlier astrologers I could find, which was Safariel yep. and his book, uh, A New Manual of Astrology from 1898. Yep. All right. So I read the last one. Do you want to read this one? Sure. Sure. Uranus gives constructive and mechanical ability, sudden changes, estrangements, sorrows, exiles, enmities, uncertain fortunes, and blind impulses. It makes its subject erratic, eccentric, impulsive, ingenious, and inventive, firm in opinion, critical, sarcastic, self-centered, romantic, heroic, and many ways and, and in many ways peculiar. Peculiar, I like that. Yeah. Planetary dominions, Uranus rules catastrophes, sudden events, changes, bereavement, bereavements, suicides, romances, tragedies, and public affairs. Planetary occupations, lecturers, public functionaries, government or civic officials, travelers, engineers, inventors, patentees, all of whom follow uncommon pursuits, um, such as astrologers, electricians, mesmerists. Ooh, there's a good word we don't hear a lot. Right. Mesmerists, phrenologists, another one, spirit mediums, metaphysicians, and psychologists, also those who deal in electrical apparatus, scientific mechanism, etc. Yeah, those are all good. Nice. All right. So- you know that list. There's a lot of really familiar things because that's what 122 yes, yeah. something odd years ago now. And you know, there's a lot of core things on there that are still things I think astrologers associate with Uranus today. They're very I straightforward, agree. showing that by you know the turn, the beginning of the 20th century, by like 1900, astrologers had gotten Uranus down relatively well. They'd figured out for the most part what its core meanings were, and those meanings have largely stayed consistent up to today, as we'll see. There are a few things on there that are either sort of period specific, like talking about mesmerism, or that are things that maybe have dropped out a little bit over the past century that astrologers maybe don't associate with Uranus as much at this point. 
Um, but for the most part, it was pretty. We're, we're pretty solid there, right? Yeah, and I find it interesting that he already associates it with electrical apparatus. Mm. And and I'd like to just tell a very quick, brief story um, that I think is another telling uh, a telling Uranian story, mm-hmm. and and that is going back to. Um, the discovery of Uranus and and people messing around with electricity. And then through the um, 19th century, you know, you had Faraday and Hertz and, and Maxwell and these people that were not only um, exploring electricity, but also poking their way into um, what we now know of as electromagnetism. Mm-hmm. And going back to the very um, late 18th century, very early um, 19th century, the big question on scientific investigators' minds was what is the relationship or is there a relationship between electricity and magnetism? Mm. That, that, that somehow they knew that there was something connecting them, but they, there, was no, there was no empirical um, approach to trying to figure out how, what their relationship was. Okay. And a, a scientist, actually, at that time, they were called natural philosophers, not scientists, um, teaching something that we would may, maybe, maybe call physics um, at a university in Copenhagen in, in Denmark, was doing a lecture um, about the work of, I think at that time, Michael Faraday and some of these people who were exploring electricity. And he had a closed circuit with a voltmeter, which measures electrical current with a battery in the circuit. And he showed that when he completed the circuit, the voltmeter registered electrical current. Hmm. And when he disconnected it, there was no registering of any current. And when he completed the circuit without the battery, there was no registering of any current. But he had this magnet that was just on the table. And as he's talking, he brings the magnet over the wire. And this is in a public lecture. Mm-hmm. And he begin, and he realizes that as he moves the magnet over the wire back and forth, the voltmeter is registering electrical current. Mm. And he literally went electricity, magnetism, electromagnetism. This was in 1821, the year of a Uranus-Neptune opposition. Okay, And it's crazy that we moderners know that Uranus is the planet that's associated with electrical energy. We'll say more about that later. Mm-hmm. And we know that Neptune is the planet that's associated more so with, with what we might call magnetic energy. And in fact, I think that even Safariel's um, um, commenting on mesmerism, and those are more Neptunian things in modern astrology, but there was no Neptune yet to, well, there was, but there wasn't really segregated out. Hmm. Um, And yet the word electromagnetism and the concept of electromagnetism came about at a um, Uranus um, um, electricity Neptune, I said opposition, but I believe it was a conjunction in eighteen in eighteen twenty one. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it, to me that's that's an incredible story unto itself. Yeah, um, I like that. So electricity, and certainly in the past, you know, couple of centuries after the discovery of Uranus, electricity has become this hugely important and integral piece of life that's kind of revolutionized like even you know living day to day like the ability to turn on a light in your room uh, to have light at night when it's not naturally 
daytime out because previously you to have had- radios to have television to have computers to right. have uh, I, I mean everything is driven in some way by electrical apparatus at some at some level yeah and so it's like that and technology is something that can sometimes like improve life or change life and to change it um radical radical change but yeah. also very quick fast paced change is something very much associated with uranus it's like we used to have you know, we had the the benefics. We had Venus and Jupiter, which tend to represent like growth, or or Jupiter with like expansion. Um, mm-hmm. But growth tends to be a little bit more, um, you know, slow and like building on organic. Yeah, organic. That's a good one. Whereas Uranus has this artificial component and this like rapid component. That's like light speed sort of component. Yes, and I think light speed is an important word because when we talk about Uranus, we actually talk about instantaneity, mm. or at least the appearance of it. Um, unlike magnetism, um, magnetism creates a field, and as you get closer to it, you feel the field. You get a sense, you get a feeling, um, um, you can get a pull on the magnet, you, the uh, mesmerism, hypnotism, all of that. And And I should note that um, Safariel's piece was actually written during the decade of the Neptune, the once every 400 year Neptune Pluto conjunction. Mm. And so, regardless of what he was writing, it was also coming through this filter of a Neptune Pluto conjunction that they didn't know about then yet. Right. Um, and, but, but this idea that electricity is sudden, you have an electrical circuit, it's on or off. Right. There's no you don't need to warm up the engine on an electrical circuit when the power went out when we were beginning to record this session it was instantaneous right. like lightning like striking. a lightning bolt yeah and and that whole thing of of lightning being related to Uranus mm-hmm. um I, w- I want to save that for a little bit because there's a deeper dive on how important that is to understanding how Uranus works but it's instantaneous there is no graduation that's why and Safario has it down. That's why it's unexpected. It's sudden. It's um. It, it, it he used another word: blind impulses, erratic, eccentric, impulsive. Um. It, you you can't expect it. Like lightning, you can. There can be a storm going on, and you can think that lightning is going to happen, and then it happens. But you never know when the next strike is going to be or where it's going to strike. It has that whole element of of instantaneous and uncertain. Yeah, so he said well, his very second one was sudden changes. Yeah. And then later he says um sudden events changes. Um so sudden changes is a great core Uranus one in terms of like top level Uranus archetypes. Like yes. that's got to be one of the core ones is sudden changes. Different than Saturn or Jupiter because Jupiter the the growth aspect of Jupiter was organic. There was there was a movement to it, even even in its um, uh, concept of traveling and education. I mean, there was a process involved in Jupiter, mm-hmm. um, almost like blowing up a balloon. You, you could watch it getting bigger. Right. And Saturn also was, you know, Saturn. If in in its karmic aspect, you get what you deserve, but it wasn't necessarily instantaneous. Yes, there was instant karma is going to get you, but I would imagine that that meant Uranus was involved somehow because Saturn itself took its time in delivering its 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 verdict. Yeah, I mean even karma in, in like an Indian context is not something that's usually instant. It can be delivered over lifetimes. Yes. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so that idea of of sudden changes um 
also, you know, changes in technology. There's been such a rapid change in technology, and in tra- like in the older tradition, something I was thinking about after doing the Mars episode um, with Sylvie last month, and then I also did the Jupiter episode with with Sam mm-hmm. Reynolds. And um, one thing that I didn't emphasize as much as I would have liked is that Mars in traditional astrology is very fast, and it speeds up whatever it touches. Versus, and it's associated with heat and excessive heat, whereas Saturn is associated with excessive cold, and Saturn tends to slow things, things down. down. Yeah. So, part of the basic dynamic in, that you can understand Mars and Saturn in very in, that's very useful is just understanding something that speeds things up versus something that slows things Anyone down. Anyone here ever drive a car? I mean, it's, right. it's, it's the accelerator and the brake. Yeah. That's that's how the two of them work in in tandem, or often not in tandem. Right. Where we hit the accelerator too much and go off the road, or we hit the brake, you know, too hard and we, you know, and too late and we crash into something. Right. But it's but it is that hot cold, uh, you know, uh, gas brake or accelerator brake. Yeah. Yeah. So so there are already ideas of like quickness versus slowness in traditional astrology yeah. with the traditional planets, but yeah. Uranus introduced this component of. Like rapid um, jumps forward, or rap- rapid leaps forward, especially in technology and even in like travel. Like if you think about how much travel has expanded through the use of technology, through machines, through like um, you know, for steam engines, through eventually like steam trains, through absolutely air- and, and, airplanes. And even go go back to when Uranus was in. Aries in the 1850s, I think, maybe 1850s, 1860s, but right in that period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had this guy, Samuel Morse, who came to Congress with this idea that he had that he demonstrated that could send electrical impulses um, instantaneously. Uh, over long distances if they were wired. Mm. And Congress was so amazed by this invention that they allocated at then, which was a small fortune, it was something like $20,000 to create an electrical line connecting Baltimore and Washington, D.C. And at that moment, once that was completed, a message was sent from Baltimore to Washington, D.C., that a month earlier would have taken a day and a half or a day by horseback to get the message there. Now, all of a sudden, was instantaneous. And it was mind-blowing how quickly the entire United States was strung up with with electrical wires that followed basically railroad tracks. That was the easiest way to do it. Um, But then even transatlantic cables and the ability to communicate um, the you know that saying um, you know that this has, th- this is as irrelevant as the cost of tea in China. Well, there's this whole idea that when when one was able to know what the value of the crop was in China, the tea crop, mm-hmm. the clipper ships, the first one back to London, could make fortunes on the market by knowing whether it was to bet on you know good prices or bad prices. Okay, and all of a sudden that was instantaneous. And so how quickly electricity through Morse code shrunk the planet to a dot, to a point, right. um, is mind-boggling. And again, we moderners don't necessarily think on that scale because we go online and send an email to someone in Shanghai or Buenos Aires, and we don't think anything of it. We get a reply. We have a Zoom meeting with people all over the world, right. and yet, and yet it was very different pre 
um, pre-electricity. Yeah, communication used to be a lot slower uh, for centuries, for centuries and centuries and centuries, and then all of a sudden it was quick. It was lightning quick. Lightning quick. Yeah. Um, so that's very important. Um, why don't we move on to sure. one of our next excerpts, which we're going to jump forward a few decades to uh, the German astrologer Reinhold Eberton and his book, The Combination of Stellar Influences, which is published in 1940. And this is very influential on a number of later modern astrologers like Rob Hand and, and Richard Tarnas and others. So that's one of the reasons why- uh, Oh, an important book. I mean, a book that that most modern astrologers go back to for some very basic imagery of uh, um, although it may be more dire in some cases than some moderners would like, but right, yeah. yeah. Um, so here it is. He says, "The principle of Uranus is suddenness, revolution, and change. Psychological correspondence um, plus side. He gives like positive ones. Mm -hmm. He says peculiarity, independence, a love of freedom, independent action, and ideas." Enthusiasm for everything that is new or modern, agility or motility. I don't know if that means mobility. Mm -hmm. um, good powers of perception, intuition allied with objective judgment, easy excitability, a, sen a sense of rhythm, negative psychological correspondence, an obstinate nature, lack of adaptability, rebellion, revolutionary tendencies, an excitable nature, impulsive actions. Strong emotional tensions, passions for innovation, changeability of character. And then finally, he gives biological correspondences, rhythm, connections with the nervous system, with the meninges or membranes of the brain, with the pituitary gland, and with the spinal marrow. Yeah. So that's Reinhold Eberton. And here we start to get more of a crystallization of some of the core meanings of Uranus that became so common in modern astrology, especially the first ones that he mentions, which are just suddenness, revolution, and change. Yeah. But also, he's also now making a connection between um, the electrical nature. He doesn't say it in these words, but he's making a connection between the electrical nature of Uranus mm -hmm. and the nervous system in the human body, which is electrical in nature. Okay. And and so there's a relationship between Mercury and Uranus. In fact, the concept of planetary octaves, there are those who say that Uranus is the high, that the outer planets are higher octaves um, of Mercury, Venus, and Mars, and that Uranus is the higher octave of Mercury. But you see, Mercury is the thought, and Uranus is the distribution <laughs> of the thought. It's 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 the nervous system. So people who are ectomorphs, who have you know, who are tall, thin, Ichabod crane kind of um, you know, uh, mercurial maybe even in nature, um, there is a high-strung nervous system energy that is associated with the planet of, of Uranus, and and hmm. that's the first we see of that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Sort of high strongness. Um, okay, so. One of the revolution, this is already mentioned, but I think it's worth going back to because astrologers often talk about and end up invoking um, you know, the United States and the birth of the United States, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which where the Declaration of Independence was um way back in 1776. Um, so I'm going to put up the Sibley chart. I don't know what you have preference of US, yeah, US yeah, chart. That's, that's, yeah. Okay. Um, so here's the US. 
Sibley chart for the signing of the Declaration of Independence for July 4th, 1776. And it has Sagittarius rising and it has Uranus in Gemini with Mars also in Gemini in the roughly about in the seventh house, let's just give, give or take. Um, you know, it has a Cancer stellium and everything else. But part of the uh, thing here is just not just the prominence of, of Uranus in the United States chart, but just the fact that the United States was founded so close um, to the discovery of Uranus in. In that century, and that the moon in that chart is in Aquarius, and this is a probably a short discussion we'll come to in a few minutes, and that is the whole issue of modern planetary rulerships right. and whether one uses them or not. The alleged association of Uranus with Aquarius mm -hmm. and the moon in Aquarius in the U U.S. Sibley chart obviously is a piece of that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so, but that notion of like revolutionary, because that was such a big deal at the time for the U.S. colonies to just like announce we're we're free, we're free, yeah, and that we're declaring our independence from the king and from um, the you know British or you know the U.K. In yeah, general. and obviously when we look at these issues retroactively, we just need to, in our modern sense, be aware of the. Um, of of the cultural limitations of what that concept of freedom meant then. I mean, you know, right. the fact is that it meant freedom for white landowners. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, in effect, um, and and yet it, it's also interesting that um, the primary author of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, was an Aries. You know, writing a Declaration of I'm free. Screw right. you. I'm I'm. Uh, this is who I am. You yeah. Know? And I think there were tensions even amongst the writers, the authors of the Declaration of Independence, about whether um, slavery oh, should be mentioned. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but but at least there was that notion, or that there's that impulse of um, throwing off the shackles of something that's holding you back and declaring your independence. That that is something that that's on a very large scale of like a country. But when a person has either, let's say. Uranus prominent in their chart, that's going to be an impulse that might maybe is prominent either in their life or in their personality right, of right. like independence or, or rebelliousness. Or when a person has a major Uranus transit, like Uranus going over their ascendant or their midheaven, there's going to be also that impulse of, um, of fr seeking freedom and wanting to throw off whatever their perceived um, restrictions are at the time, which is very much, you know, a Saturn type thing where you have Saturn as the the ringed planet and the last of the visible planets, and then after that comes Uranus, and Uranus just blows um, sort of the restrictions that we thought were there up until that point out of the water in terms of what the visible planets were and what the perceptible world is. All of a sudden, it is and gone. also it, it it changes what we can actually rebel against. Meaning that prior to Uranus, there was no thought of the individual having that much freedom to actually, you know, take on those that level of of breaking free. You know, on right. that, and 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 that brings up another issue of how we moderners have views of the planet that are sometimes one-dimensional compared to their older views because modern planets have taken away from the old planet. Mm. And, and I mean, the, the example with Uranus is prime here because prior to the discovery of Uranus, 
Saturn had a revolutionary aspect too. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it was it was it was the authority and the rules. But scientists were Saturnians because they knew enough about the rules that they knew where they could be bent or broken or or changed. Mm. And and so we moderners put Saturn now in this, you're stuck and you can never break out of anything. Whereas the fact of the matter was Saturn did fine before Uranus was discovered and had a Uranian aspect to it also. The same case could be made with you know, with Mars um, losing its emotionality as Pluto was given to watery, you know, Scorpio. Therefore, many moderners think of Mars as the warrior rather than Mars as the lover, so to speak. Mm. Um, and the same with Jupiter and Neptune. I mean, even though these affinities work, um, we moderners tend to reduce Jupiter you know, to the logic and the rational and the and the beliefs rather than the emotional and the and the imagination that it that it was that it did double duty. Mm. You know, until the modern planets were were discovered. Yeah, that's a really good and point, and it brings up a few discussion points. Okay, one last thing I want to say before the discussion points okay. is that I've always found it curious that in talking about rulerships. That Rob Hand wrote, and I want to say it's in essays. This is a big digression, by the way. You're no, up, it's okay. it's it's a it's well. He he brought up the point that of all the modern quote unquote rulerships or associations is the word I like to use. Mm. That that the association of Uranus to Aquarius was the least tenable, and I okay. never got that because I always I I think that that the association. I mean, I get Saturn's association with Uranus. But I also see with Aquarius. I'm sorry, with Aquarius. Okay. Thank you. And but I also see the association with Uranus with Aquarius. Um, that that whole duality, the dilemma, you know, being part of and not part of the futuristic and and something beyond the individual, um, you know, the social structure hmm. and and so on. Um, but it's it's interesting how we moderners think we know um, what we've learned. Um, and without going back to the um, to the Hellenistic uh, understanding, we lose quite a bit of what the planets actually meant. Yeah, it's really tricky just because the modern um, once the outer planets started being discovered, uh, astrologers did start assigning them to because you know, there was the premise up to that point that there are seven planets, and each of the seven planets is associated with one or two zodiacal signs. And in order for a planet to exist, it has to be or not exist, but if we have this premise that the planets call certain signs their home or their domiciles or dwelling places, yeah. then if there's new planets discovered, then does that mean yeah. by implication that the new planets would also call certain signs their home or domiciles or dwelling places as well? And eventually some astrologers did start assigning them to signs, um, first with Uranus to Aquarius and then eventually Neptune to Pisces. And then Pluto, as we were talking about earlier today before this, there's a little bit of a debate about whether it should be assigned to Scorpio or to Aries. And some astrologers went one way or another, and eventually, largely ended up being Scorpio. Sure. Um, so, one of the issues, though, looking back, that's hard um, to have this discussion sometimes is that once those assignments started being made, astrologers started the understanding of the outer planet started influencing how astrologers interpreted the sign exactly. of the zodiac. So now, so Saturn, which traditionally before, prior to like the 17th and 18th century, was a Saturn ruled sign, Aquarius was. Um, once astrologers started associating Uranus with Aquarius, 
that started changing and they started adapting their view of Aquarius to be more Uranian and more, more progressive, more, yeah. Yeah, more in line with that. So that, that, that creates a tricky thing sometimes in having this discussion that's been talked about more and that's become more part of the discussion after the revival of older forms of astrology starting yeah. in the 1980s and 90s is going back and looking at texts from prior to the past few centuries, prior to the discovery of Uranus and seeing how they discuss you know, Aquarius or seeing how they conceptualize Pisces and how in some ways that's the same or in other ways that's radically different than how 20th and early 21st century astrologers talk about those signs. Agreed. I, I, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, and it's, it's the signs and the planets that have had to adjust their position in order to stay a part of the family on some level. Right. Um, and I think I, I personally um, uh, honor and respect uh, both views. Mm. I think that there is something to learn from both of them. I think it's dangerous to be in either camp without acknowledging that there's something to learn from the other camp. And however you turn that into your practice, that's your business. Sure. Yeah. Um, I started out with the modern rulerships. And when I went to Kepler, I was four years into my studies and I was a purely modern astrologer. And I went to Kepler to study modern astrology. And then they, in the second year, I always tell a story about how they forced me to start studying ancient astrology and I tried to protest. That's actually, yeah. so that's actually partially your fault because yeah. you were one of the co founders of Kepler. Yeah. You actually came up with the name I of did. Kepler College, did. didn't you? Yeah, I did. Okay. So um, you're the reason I ended up eventually studying traditional astrology. So it's kind of your fault. Yeah, I'm, everything that's happened since then. I refuse then. to take responsibility for your life. Okay, <laughs> that's a that's a very Uranian statement. Aquarian. It's it's yeah, it's true. Yeah. So what was I saying? So then I started. I, I was very like militant modern astrologer though, in terms of like the modern rulerships. Are the only way, and it doesn't make any sense to have a system that doesn't incorporate the outer planets. And so it was only eventually by them literally forcing me to study ancient astrology and seeing how it was set up through these symmetries of the visible planets yeah, to create yeah. a symmetrical system that I, I started to see and understand the, the value of the older traditional rulerships and eventually started using that scheme. Um, there is an issue at this point where, at least with Uranus and Neptune, they do actually, because those assignments um, were made by astrologers in the 17th and 18th centuries who are still continuing on part of essentially traditional astrology at that point, they did make the next logical assignments, which is that if you take the, the basis of the um, traditional rulership scheme, which is the Hellenistic idea of the Thema Mundi and the notion that you start with the two luminaries in and then you go outward Leo and Cancer. Mercury from each, yeah, sure. Yeah, so so Leo in um, the Sun and Leo because that's the middle and the height of summer in the northern hemisphere, and then Mercury gets assigned the next sign in zodiacal order because Mercury never gets more than one sign away from the Sun before it turns retrograde. So it gets assigned to Virgo, and then and Venus, Venus gets assigned to Libra because it never gets more than two signs from the Sun. Then Mars is the next furthest planet out to Scorpio, then Jupiter to Sag, then Saturn to Capricorn. The next space after that would naturally be um, Aquarius. So that's why I think initially, starting whenever it was in the 18th or 19th, early 20th century, some astrologers made that conclusion that if we were going to do this, then that actually would follow the logic of the traditional scheme to next assign the next furthest planet out, which is Uranus to Aquarius. And then, and then the, the next, next furthest planet is to the next empty sign, which would be Pisces and Neptune. 
The one that really breaks that scheme, and I think that's why there was a debate about it, is Pluto. Because if you were to continue the following that scheme, then Pluto should be assigned Aries. Correct. Um, but part of the problem then is that you run into an issue with that um, going back to like the beginning of the zodiac and Mars domicile versus um, you know Scorpio, and I think that's when the mythology starts getting involved and where they started paying attention to the idea that um, you know Pluto is the ruler of the underworld, and then they started associating the eighth house with Scorpio because Scorpio is the eighth sign, and therefore notions of death, and you start getting into into stuff yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I think for a little diversion, I think we probably did this far enough for now. Okay. But, but, you know, I mean, all of this is important. Not only it's not just a discussion about Uranus, mm -hmm. but it's a discussion about Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. Look, when they first came into being, when you read um, Safariel, when you read um, other astrologers from, um, f you know, f from the turn of the, um, uh, uh, into the 18th and into the 19th and 20th century, mm. the outer planets were considered to be not as important. You know, I mean, they were, they, it, it was like, oh, these planets move so slowly and they stay in the same place for so long mm -hmm. um, that they're really only important if they are conjuncting your sun or moon or on an angle. Right. That, and, and that leads to the idea of them being like generational planets or generational which influences. Which they are, but no modern astrologer could make a case or let's say, let me put it the other way no one could make a case to most modern astrologers that uranus neptune and pluto in whatever aspects they may, might be in you know to the um inner personal and you know and and social planets uh um you know the the, the luminaries mercury venus mars jupiter and saturn mm -hmm. they're obviously you know they they obviously carry their own weight but again this goes back to the whole idea that what you saw and what you what you got that Saturn was the limit, and anything out past that was you know not as important because it was either invisible or metaphysical, and we've now moved into a world that I think the discovery of Uranus began where the metaphysical world is creating dominance over the physical world. Mm. And that is a very interesting transition, but I think it has part to do with our postmodern dilemma. Mm, right. Um, yeah. And, and what I was saying with the Uranus thing, I was just arguing, I was playing devil's advocate as a traditional astrologer and as somebody that, that does primarily use Saturn as the primary ruler of Aquarius and Jupiter for Pisces, mm -hmm. that there was it was actually that the traditional astrologers need to contend with and recognize that that the new modern assignments, at least with Uranus and Neptune, were continuing the logic of the traditional yeah, I, system. I agree. And I don't refer to the, the modern planets much anymore as rulers of those planets. I refer to them as associated with. Hmm. You know, in other words, I, I I don't necessarily consider Uranus the ruler of Aquarius. But boy, it's hard to separate out the um, the imagery and the archetypal energy of of Aquarius and or the eleventh house and or Uranus from one another um, as as a nuance to what Saturn might have been in the past. Yeah, well, we just have to distinguish things like there's different categories like you know where is a planet strongest or or yeah. let, let's say there's a separate argument which is that just because a celestial body has certain Affinity or similarities in its significations with the sign of the zodiac does not necessarily mean it has to rule that sign. Uh, exactly, I agree with so that completely. So to take that to its like an extreme, let's say 
just because the planet beer or the asteroid beer has some similarity or associations, let's say similar significations as the sign Pisces, that doesn't mean that the asteroid beer rules the sign of Pisces necessarily. It just means that there are some, let's say, archetypal similarities in some instances between those two things. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, total so, digression. So um, you you shared the um, the quote from um, combination of stellar influences. Yeah. Um, from 1940. Right. I have another quote from 1940. Okay. And this is from Grant Louis, who is an American rather than a German astrologer, but the same time period. And um, and this is from his book, Astrology for the Millions. And, and who was he really? Because he, he was a famous astrologer in the mid 20th century. What were some of, he wasn't one of the ones that was like working in Hollywood, was he? No, no, no. He actually was an English professor at Dartmouth College. Okay. Uh, professor of literature. And then he became an editor of Horoscope magazine, okay. and he wrote Astrology for the Millions and Heaven Knows What, was tremendously popular. You know, It had to do with popularizing not just sun sign astrology, but, but deeper astrology, but he wrote what might be called um, the first wave of popularization of of what we call horoscopic astrology. Okay. I'm, um, I'm trying to think of who, like, who Reagan's earlier astrologer. Oh, that was Carol Ryder. Carol Ryder, okay. Who I had the pleasure of meeting a few times when I lived in in uh, LA in the early 80s. Okay. Um, that was Carol Ryder, and he was definitely the Hollywood astrologer at the time. Got it. Um, so Grant Louis wrote, um, Uranus in a general way relates to the neuromentality, the creative originality or individuality, and his position by sign in the horoscope tells the direction along which you will seek to express your most characteristic self in a creative and original effort. Mm -hmm. And that's basically his line. He goes, he goes on to say, just, I'll read just a little bit of this. In the same sign with Mercury or the moon, there's acute awareness, quick reactions to sense impressions, and a hair-trigger mind. In the same sign with the sun, there's nervous activity, high-strung nature, original, creative, or eccentric. In the same sign with Mars, there's high-speed activity, love of speed, and perhaps danger. In the same sign with Venus, unusual reaction to emotional experience, ideally, um, highly idealistic through sensual and original ideas of love. And, and he goes on from there. But, but again, the thing about Grant Louis is that he was a 20th century astrologer, but he was pre-humanistic astrology, pre-psychological astrology. Yeah. And from that standpoint, I think he he wrote at a very interesting turning point because he's recognizably modern mm -hmm. and yet yet not recognizably astrologically psychological. Yeah, because it was uh, like um Dane Rudyard was the first that really started integrating like Carl Jung in his first book in 1936, The Astrology of Personality, but that didn't really take off and become popular until the 60s and 70s yes. and 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's such a weird and interesting thing. It's something that took me a long time to realize because I came in and started studying astrology around 1999 or 2000 and so I'm studying basically like your generation of the Pluto and Leo generation who um came in in the 1960s and 70s and 80s and that to me was modern astrology and it was largely psychological astrology yeah. and it was very Jungian and um, but that type of astrology really was 
didn't really get firmly ingrained in the tradition until that generation of the 1960s and yeah. 70s and 80s. And I didn't realize how recent that was. Whereas if you go back just a few decades earlier to like, for example, this author in 1940s. Which is why I like reading him because it really shows how modern, how recent that is. I, I was a psychology student in the late 60s, early 70s in college. Mm. Okay. And I was totally into and devouring Jung. Mm. And someone gave me a copy of The Astrology of Personality. It was okay. 1970. And up until then, I had been already studying astrology, but I had no idea it had any real relevance to anything else. I just thought it was fascinating. I was I was hooked. What year did you start studying astrology? Mm, probably 68, 69. Okay. So that's like when everyone started studying astrology? Uh, like, I, I, was, I, was, I was 18, 19. Okay. Yeah. Because Linda Goodman's book came out in like 68, yeah, I think. Yeah. And that sold like millions of copies. I think it has to be like one of the highest selling astrology yeah, books yeah, she ever. She was the first author ever to break a million dollar contract. I mean, yeah. she was a. Um, when, when Jeff Jower and I wrote the eight years of your astrology guides for Barnes and Noble, our uh, the vice president of the company, Barnes and Noble's publishing company, um, was involved in the Linda Goodman phenomenon, mm. and um, you know that everything in his life was trying to find an astrologer who would become the next Linda Goodman, right? Because it's like trying to find the next Beatles. I mean, no one will ever reproduce whatever it is that she did at that moment in time. Yeah, and that was like sixty-eight is around 60, the time yeah. of that Uranus mm -hmm. uh, Pluto conjunction, right? Yeah, which and and of course we're talking about Uranus. So the Uranus Pluto conjunction was actually. Um, uh, perfected in sixty in the summers of sixty five and sixty six, hmm. but it was through it was the signature of the nineteen sixties. Sixties, um, and Saturn was in opposition to Pluto and Uranus during that period of time. So it was a powerful, powerful time, and and certainly that you know the Linda Goodman phenomenon was you know most people I know uh, of my age got into astrology because they read Linda Goodman and said, this is amazing, and then discovered, oh my God, there's more to it than sun signs. Yeah. And that was when it started happening. I mean, that is the direct parallel to right now. Like We haven't seen a resurgence in astrology amongst the youth until the past few years. This is probably the closest we've seen um, the past few years and the sudden influx of just tons of astrologers in their teens and 20s. Um, because that, of the internet and the availability of calculated charts, yeah, uh, and the massive amount of literature, you know, when I was coming up, there were like twenty books. That was it. If you read them, you read them. You know, right. there was, and now there's thousands. Well, and, and there's a little there's an interchange in terms of a, a chicken or an egg scenario there of like which came first. Oh, yeah. Was it like the audience came first and then that's what led to the proliferation of the new tools and things or was it like the new tools and things like led to the proliferation of the audience but i was just saying that the 1940s the people are born in your generation the 1940s with pluto and leo came of age and became in their like 20s in late 1960s and it's around that time that's when astrology really takes off with that huge wave of just interest uh, from the younger generation yeah yeah, yeah. All right. Um, one of the things you mentioned really quickly before we go on is taking significations. Yeah. No, go ahead. I'm okay. listening. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the things you're gonna, you were saying was taking significations from traditional planets. And I think that's really important because that's often a complaint that some traditional astrologers have these days is um, I think it's because the, the outer planets are so distinctive in what they do and they're so powerful in what they do and they're so obviously powerful to me. So, for example, I yeah, you know, I do Hellenistic astrology as my basis, but I never stopped using the outer planets, and I've always tried to talk 
some of my traditional contemporaries, like uh, Ben Dykes, for example, who who came up studying with Robert Zoller, and Zoller, when he went into traditional, was very like anti outer planet, right. was very like these don't belong here, these are useless, it's only going to ruin your astrology. Only use the seven traditional planets, and and his thing was saying like the old ways are the good ways. So um, I, well, I have obviously I wrote like a large book on Hellenistic astrology and have an affinity for. The topic, and that's the foundation of my system. And I also use traditional rulerships and whole sign houses, and and you know Ptolemaic or what I would call the the major aspects. But you and I have a you, you would call the minor you would you don't like minor versus major aspects. I I, I call the minor aspects non Ptolemaic. Okay, because the minor aspects are just as important to you as the quote unquote. Well, like major my, my question becomes, and this is a, this is another, <laughs> another session. Okay. But my my question is, how many signs are there? How many signs in the zodiac are there up there? Mm. And people say twelve, and right. my answer is no. There's not twelve signs up there. Are you in? There's o twelve o signs in here okay. that we that we templated the twelve sign zodiac because twelve is such a powerful, magical, useful number in in dividing by half and quarter, third. I mean, it. it I, I'm. There's no doubt here that twelve is the right number to use when talking about cycles, mm. but. That is a limiting factor in how we look at what's up there because there are divisions by non-zodiacal numbers, by five, by seven, by nine, by whatever, 11, 13, whatever. Okay. I thought you were going to go in a Ophiuth. I thought you were going to become no. an Ophiuchus truther oh, or something and go in a weird no. direction. Okay. <laughs> um, no. Count me out of that. My answer to Ophiuchus is you can't have a 13th sign because because astrology is based on a 12 sign zodiac. So so it's like it's like how can you add a 13 sign to a system based on 12? Don't go there. Yeah, well and also And I'm not saying that there's not use to to real constellational and or sidereal astrology. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, well and if people want to do constellational astrology then they can do constellational astrology but as tropical zodiac astrologers like what the existence of the constellation Ophiuchus is not relevant in terms not of Not relevant. Yeah. Um, all right. So going back before the digression, <laughs> there's so many good digressions that we could go on. Um, but to try to yeah. restrain ourselves, see, we've got we've moved out past Saturn, so now we're just unrestrained and and yeah, dad, dad's not home. But yeah, we, we can go anywhere. <laughs> the sky is the limit. Um, and literally Uranus and that's means Uranus, the sky. The sky. It's yeah. the sky god. Okay. Um, trying to focus. Uh, so. I, even though I use the traditional rulership scheme, um, I've always tried to encourage some of my traditional contemporaries to still pay attention to the outer planets because I think they are very relevant and they do things very starkly and very effectively and very usefully in contemporary practice. They actually bring something new and useful and meaningful to, to the traditional system. So one of the complaints though that traditional astrologers have is that sometimes significations have been taken from the old traditional planets and given to the new planets. And there's a certain extent to which that's true. For example, we you mentioned freedom, or freedom keeps being brought up as a Uranus thing. And previously, one of the things we saw in the episode with Sam the last time I was doing an interview in the studio last month, Related when we talked Jupiter. about Jupiter, like because Jupiter was often contrasted with Saturn, and Saturn was like restrictions and jail and chains 
and being held back by something, and Jupiter was the opposite of that. It was being freed from restrictions or being freed from bonds or chains or what have you. But Jupiter always had to work through logic and kind of gradually um, working the system from within. Mm -hmm. Jupiter, the magic of Jupiter is that it is expansive, but only up to its negotiation mm -hmm. with Saturn that is the outward bound. Okay. And Uranus basically says, fuck that. Uranus says, I'm out of here. There is no negotiation. Saturn does not, Saturn, Saturn has been made invisible. Yeah. So Uranus kind of upends the entire system and, and overthrows the overthrows entire system. Overthrows the whole system. And that was part of the mythology of like Saturn and Uranus, although it's a little reversed because it was yeah. Saturn that was rebelling from Uranus, but at least that was part of the the archetype, at least, the notion of like rebelling against one's father and and upending the entire old system. But again, that brings us back to the, we have to be careful about just accepting the mythology yeah. rather than the actual apparency of what of what happens. Yeah. Well, I'm very anti-mythology. I was just, that's one of the one points that I will give it, yeah. at least that coming into play. Well, I think mythology has a, 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 a use in a certain area. It's incredibly applicable because the stories are so overwhelmingly powerful in their portrayal, mm -hmm. but to then take them and to layer them onto another system that has obviously either outgrown them or in some ways grown parallel, I think can be dangerous or limiting maybe is a better way of saying it. Yeah, definitely. Um, and actually, what else you got? You got a couple of other discussion points here from just um. So so maybe part of the point may maybe is just that there are different ways. So while some of those significations have been taken, it's because there can be multiple um, things in the solar system or multiple planets that either signify similar things or have overlapping significations. And that was true in traditional astrology, and so that's okay still in modern astrology if there are overlapping significations. And sometimes it may be the same thing, or sometimes it may be variations of the same thing. Yeah, I actually think that a good metaphor for understanding that is that you can have a microscope, mm -hmm. and you can look under that microscope at um, 100 power and see these paramecium floating around with their little flagellates, whatever they're called, the wiggly things. Okay. And then you can change that power to 500 power. And all of a sudden you see an entirely different scenario of what's going on inside the paramecium. And then you can change to 5,000 or 10,000, depending on your microscope or use an electron scanning microscope. And then I think that what we're doing is that one system doesn't negate the other, just like the the non-Ptolemaic um, aspects don't negate the Ptolemaic, it's just changing power on the microscope. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Or um, another analogy I was thinking of is that Mercury, traditionally in like the second century of Adius Valens, associated Mercury with um, messengers and with messages. Like when you send a message in the mail, like somebody in second century Alexandria, Egypt would write down a letter on like a a piece of papyrus and like mail it to and someone whoever. Would carry that to somewhere else. Yeah, so that's a the basic idea of mail and Mercury was associated with that with communication with messages. But then in modern times we have like email, like ele literally electronic mail, which is like a Mercury Uranus, Uranus type thing. Agreed. So it's like yeah, there's overlapping or or echoes of similar archetypes, but that sometimes there's a slight change or there's a slight twist that makes it a little bit new or a little bit different. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things to always keep in mind is that astrology is always a function 
of time and space. Well, we know that. Right. But that also then changes as cultural mores, traditions, religions, perceptions of the outer world, um, you know, as our view of the outer world, if the outer and the inner, if, if, if as above, so below, mm-hmm. um, if the two are one and the same, well, as our understanding of the outer world changes, our understanding of the inner world needs to change accordingly. Right. And that's why astrology evolves as consciousness evolves. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important. Uh, all right. So we can we can move on from that in terms of we've addressed like taking significations, we've addressed rulerships. All right. So here's an excerpt from Stephen Forrest's book, The Inner Sky, which was published in 1988. And I feel like at this point we get more into the sort of standard late 20th century astrology at this point, or quote unquote modern astrology, or what used to be I guess it's still called modern astrology, although that term's starting to become a little tricky. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, all right. So no, but but Stephen Forrest would be someone who would be considered a psychological astrologer, and obviously now an evolutionary astrologer. Mm-hmm. But but certainly, you know, more um, uh, occurrent. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. So here he breaks into different categories. So he says the function of Uranus is the development of individuality, the development of the capacity to question authority, the transcendence of cultural and social programming. Its dysfunction is contrariness, stubbornness, inflexibility, touchiness, quirkishness, unreliability, irresponsibility, selfishness, insensitivity to others' feelings, inability to learn from others, and eccentricity for its own sake. I love that one. I want to come back to that. Uh, and, and, and I would say just as a very quick interjection that um, this is an example of someone who has a bias against Uranus because look how long the list of dysfunction is compared to the shorter list of function. Okay. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's got a, an axe to grind with Uranus. <laughs> maybe. All we'll right. have to ask him. Yeah. We'll get him on the phone. Uh, all right. So he says, key questions. In what department of life must I be willing to function without social approval? Where must I learn to break the rules and follow my own path? Where will I consistently receive the most misleading advice? Which authorities am I destined to, to challenge and offend? So that's Stephen Forrest. So at this point, we can see things are much more psychological, mm-hmm. uh, like psychological and character based astrology is much more the core focus at this point. Um, Stephen is also the point at which, you know, with evolutionary, especially in his later works, there's much more of also like a spiritual or evolutionary component, although that's not as obvious here, but it's still relevant yes. in terms of the, yeah. the sort of backdrop of where he's coming from. Yeah, I agree. And 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 I think that this is I mean, what he said here are things that I think most modern astrologers would just simply go, Yeah, that's that's Uranus. They're they're all right. recognizable. Um, although there are some things that I think we need to talk about. Uh, beyond that, but if there's anything here that we want to go over specifically, I mean, he he has the thing nailed as far as <clears throat> Uranus. Uranus is not concerned with the result of what it knows needs to be done. Um, in fact, sometimes when Uranus operates in our lives, I think of Uranus as, um, although we'll get to more to the lightning-like thing in a moment, um, <clears throat> I think of Uranus as Uranus strikes to rectify a situation, mm-hmm. like 
burning Yellowstone to the ground 20 years ago or so, a forest fire, you're, you know, it, it decimated um, Yellowstone uh, Park. National Park. National Park. And ecologists and naturalists were saying, this is the worst disaster, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the worst disaster ever that will never recover, blah, 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 blah. The thing, though, is, is that Uranus's job is to strike to relieve the tension or to or to equal to create equilibrium in the moment. It's not Uranus's job to give a shit about what happens afterwards. Yeah, what happens afterwards. And this whole thing with good or bad is with Uranus, it's absolutely irrelevant because Uranus doesn't Uranus is beyond it's Nietzsche, beyond good and evil. Mm. It 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 does ha it has no concern at all as to whether what it does has a positive or negative um result or or outcome. Its only job is to rectify the situation in the moment. And parenthetically, um naturalists now say that the fires in Yellowstone 20, 30 years ago were created the most dramatic revival that anyone could have ever imagined. The flora and fauna there are better than they ever were prior to the fire. And there's something about Uranus clearing out the underbrush so that the new can occur. Yeah. Well, and Uranus's impulse is to shake things up and to just like tear it all down. And that's its primary thing that it does, its primary function. And sometimes it's not well, there is, there can be, especially in the inventive sense, like a, a long futuristic side to Uranus. The side of it that is about shaking things up sometimes is just about creating chaos, sometimes just for chaos's sake and, and yeah, not being worried about what comes tomorrow. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, the Uranus somehow seeks out the weak link of the chain, it seeks out that which hasn't been expressed. Um, you know, that which we do not express gets buried. We now know that our unconsciousness does not exist in our brain. It exists in every cell of our body. Mm. And Uranus will find that unexpressed unconscious energy, whether it's in the stomach or in the heart or in the big toe, Uranus will find it and blow it up and nuke it and get it out into the open to relieve that pent up um stress from the from the tension of holding something in mm. that saturn and interestingly enough the relationship between uranus and saturn which we talked about a little bit earlier with the kind of uranus blasting through the wall um you know saturn is the wall right. uh, saturn and uranus just goes like right through it like it doesn't even exist mm. And um, Rob Hand wrote in Planets in Transit, and one of his descriptions about, I don't remember whether it was transiting Uranus to Saturn or transiting Saturn to Uranus, but, but the image holds either way. <clears throat> and the image is an irrepressible force meeting an immovable object. Hmm. That's how Saturn and Uranus work together. Right. Something's got to give. Yeah. Uh, and, and change. And that makes me think of, I always think of, well, sometimes when I think of Uranus and Saturn, I think of the uh, 2008 US presidential election when I think the Saturn-Uranus opposition was very close. And so archetypally, it was sort of set up as um, the old versus the new, and especially about um, ideas of change, and Uranus kind of won out. And it was interesting that the, the guy that won, of course, in the 2008 election in November of 2008, when that Saturn-Uranus opposition was so close was the guy that had the slogan, which was literally on his poster, it just said change. Uh, that was Obama's slogan in the mm -hmm. 2008 election. Mm -hmm. I think that he 
sort of captured the more Uranian side of um, the times or the the whatever the the thing in the era was at the time. Yeah, the zeitgeist. Right. And and we're seeing that now being now being 2021-ish right. with the Uranus um with the Saturn Uranus square, that same kind of energy of the old versus the new, the um regressive versus the progressive, um the control versus the blow it all up and see what happens when we take a new approach. I mean, it's the same it's that same energy but we're getting it differently from the square. Yeah, definitely. Or um, like the Saturn-Uranus conjunction in Capricorn of the late 1980s was often associated with the uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So uh, one thing I want to talk about that Stephen mentions here is he uses the term. He uses a negative, but the term like eccentric is such a great Uranus term because. It is. Uranus is nothing if not, especially Uranus natives, when it gets tied in with their personalities in some way or character parts of the chart. If a person has a very prominent Uranus thing, it's eccentric is one of the great keywords for it Uranus. It is, and when we think of that word, we can think of it as a um, as a as a geometric concept mm. and something that's eccentric is in an orbit that is tilted away from that. There we go. Right is, is you know, and and of course. You know the fact that planets move and are the way that their archetypes are. Um, you know it, it, we should mention that that Uranus is eccentric in many ways, just physically. It, it, yeah. It's high. Um, you know, reflection is one of its eccentricities. Um, the fact that its north pole is almost pointing toward the sun—that is like a bowling ball. Wh which know. none of the other planets do that. Like all the other planets, um, sort of. Orbit around the sun, and then they have their own spin, sort of rotation which is in the same in the same plane, roughly. Right, roughly. Right, roughly. Uh, but Uranus is like this weird planet where its pole is pointed at the sun, and it's like rotating roughly it's on like what a would be its ball. side. It's like, it's like rolling along. It's a, like it's on its side. Yeah. Yeah. So just like, and its moons are actually retrograde motion. Okay. You know, it's everything about Uranus is weird. It's weird. And Uranus is the weird planet. And, yeah. you know, it's just it, it, everything's about it. It's weird. And, and you know, one of the things, and this is a, a whole topic, and, and also I think we can come back to this in a bit, but a little bit of foreshadowing. Uh, to me, Uranus is the quantum planet. Hmm. I mean, because um, Uranus is unpredictable, and quantum physics says there's no Newtonian cause and effect. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, all we can do is play with probabilities and 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 make educated guesses with with quantum physics. But the piece about um, Uranus is that, as it's really weird, the the founder, if you will, of quantum physics, Niels Bohr, once quipped, "The universe," and he was referring here to quantum physics is not stranger than you think. It's stranger than you can think. Mm -hmm. And that's Uranus, because Uranus pushes all those Saturnian boundaries that we thought we knew, and it turns them all on its side. And in particular, Uranus is probably the most singularly offensive planet to the concept of fate. <laughs> mm. Because, because, or, or, or fate and free will, because Uranus begs that question of its unpredictability. It's, un, it doesn't have that fated sense of karma. You get what you deserve. I, I sometimes call Ur, Uranus as the Uranian zap factor. Mm. Sometimes stuff happens 
for no apparent reason. Now we may assign apparent reasons to it, mm-hmm. but but there's that whole concept of uh, of um, Uranus happening out of the blue. The light, yeah, the it's ran- not even a storm. Thing. It's not it's not even a storm, and the lightning strikes. Everything is perfect, and we go to record a session on Uranus, and boom, there's no power. Right, you know that's a that's the Uranian zap factor at yeah. work, and there's a quantum non causal aspect um, of of Uranus as to how it just crashes into being, even when there's no apparent storm, when you don't expect lightning to strike. Yeah, or getting struck by lightning is such a random, like unlikely thing compared to all the lightning strikes. And if you happen to be the unlucky person that's like standing there at that time, you know, it's it's a very um unusual thing or or random sort of thing in some some ways. Yeah. Um, so, but let's go back. So, because Saturn is like, let's just say societally, like Saturn is the status quo. Yes. And Uranus is that which is outside against or that re- which rebels against the status quo. Exactly. And we can see that sort of very literally symbolically by like Uranus being the planet that literally orbits in this weird direction that none of the other planets do. And that's a whole topic in and it itself. I'm hoping to do an episode on at some point, which is another access point, which is that the physical properties of the planets can inform sometimes their astrological yeah. meaning. So here's something on that that's really intriguing. We mentioned earlier, I mentioned earlier, and we talked about how the material universe matter is represented by the cardinal cross. The 90-degree angle um, it has something to do with things coming into matter. And that, and the and the um, cardinal cross or the cross of the of, of Christianity, um, the cross that's in between the pillars here in the symbol of Uranus, mm-hmm. that 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 represents in some ways the structure of the world. Well, if you take that cross and you tilt it forty five degrees, what looks like a T becomes an X. Okay, and all of a sudden the structure of Saturn, which the glyph looks like a reversed ST. I mean, that's, it is actually, you know, the, the, you know, when you take the symbol of Saturn, which, you know, it looks like the backward, it looks like the backward S hanging down off of the, the T. And when you mirror image it, it becomes an ST. And I contend that the uh, Greco-Roman languages have the ST as a leftover from the integrated symbol of Saturn, and that, in fact, when you look at the ST words, it's status, structure, stamina, austerity, test, um, stability, um, uh, structure, stasis. I mean, the sto words are crazy Saturnian. Okay. I mean, just crazy. But when you tilt the ST, when you tilt the T, you get an X, and all of a sudden you're in the realm of exformation, like transformation. Hmm. You know, there's something about Uranus that takes that structure and makes it disappear. The fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, it just disappears. Mm-hmm. And, and and in a way, it, it's like an instantaneous depowering of the stability and the structure that Saturn has held and that we have held as the ultimate authority. It was sacrosanct. It was, that was it. And then Uranus somehow just transforms it and uranus i mean there is there is a transformational quality in all of the outer planets mm-hmm. but uranus being kind of the you know the the poster child of the first you know discovered i think it's important yeah of like radical change and even um, the symbol of uranus taking saturn with its rings and turning it on its side mm-hmm. there's that transformational cap- you know transformational thing right that's a good point ecstatic 
you know, it's the X, st stasis Saturn, X, it's the Uranian beyond the stasis. Okay. Um, so going back to the ideas of like eccentricity and like the character analysis of that, when a person has Uranus prominent in a personality part of their chart, like near the ascendant of the first house or configured close to the lead to that, sometimes there can be something about their personality or how they present themselves or their personal Bob appearance. Di- Bob Dylan with the sun conjunct Uranus. Okay. I mean, you know, yeah. Yeah, that can be eccentric. And um, it's interesting, you know, sometimes it can just make them stand out from the crowd or stand out socially or societally or something like that. Um, it's funny that Stephen mentions here eccentricity for its own sake, because that can be kind of like another side of Uranus, which can just be the person who's constantly looking to go against the grain or looking to go against the social conventions or social norms almost for for its own sake in some sense. Yeah, with Uranus in my first house being my rising planet, if not on the ascendant, mm-hmm. um, I've looked back at my younger years and I used to do stuff that was just disruptive just for the fun of it. Okay. You know, just just to to to, to shock people. Did you have like a mohawk or something? No, nah, I'm not even talking about physically, you know, I'm just saying things or, you know, kind of presenting not so much even the devil's advocate position but just saying things that upset the status quo mm. um, that, uh, yeah, I, I think Uranus does that. It's, it's the shock, shock and awe. It's the, you know, the upset. It's the radical. It's the, um, you look at a, a chart like Angela Davis, who has a Mars um, Uranus. I, I think it's a Mars Uranus conjunction, if I'm not mistaken. And it's that, you know, it, it's, it's a rebel with or without a cause but it's that willingness to to act in a way that is disruptive. Right. Yeah, that's disruptive and disrupts the status quo, whatever the status quo exactly. is. Exactly. But it's interesting that it has that relative component to it because it's always relative to whatever the status quo is. It's relative to what the establishment is at that time. And it's funny then because that's relative to that culture and relative to that period of time so that sometimes it's funny because then we look back like a few decades and things it's that no become big deal. Yeah, yeah and it's no yeah. big deal because yeah. it, you know those things become integrated and they become eventually societal norms in some instances and when something becomes normalized in society it almost like ceases to have that uranian component to it in some sense so it's important to understand that it's always relative to that point in time and relative to that culture yeah we think of someone like oscar wilde who had Uranus square his moon mm. and the things that he said and 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 him ending up like dying I mean broken and having spent time in jail for being a homosexual mm. you know there was that was that, I wouldn't say that was the least of his problems the other part of it was that he offended pretty much everyone with his clever sharp wit and but he it was almost like he didn't care about the results of what his brilliance was, it had to come out. Right. Um, and um, and yeah, I think that, and yet the things that he said and or did now would just be like, cool. Right. Yeah. Or um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things like that, like things that are shocking, like let's say um, performers or Lenny artists. Bruce comes to mind. Okay. I don't know what his chart is, but I wouldn't be surprised if the, I mean whether there was a strong Uranus in it or not. Mm -hmm. um, he was a Uranian in as much as I mean he was uh, jailed so many times for obscenities that now almost any comedian on stage will say the things that Lenny Bruce said, but it was shocking then because it was Uranian. Right, he was a, a stand-up comic. He was a stand-up comic in the 50s um, who would get up on stage and just take certain words and repeat them. And it was, it was horrifying to mm. people, you know, hearing people on stage, you know, saying those things that no one ever said in public. Right. You know, now language has loosened up so much that it's just no big deal. And sometimes that can be, there can be like a far-seeing component where, you know, that phrase, you know, they were ahead of their time. Oh, yeah. That's a very Uranian. It's phrase. very Uranian. And there we have the affinity between Jupiter and Uranus. Yeah. Um, and and there is there is a there is an affinity between them. And often we see we see the Jupiter Uranus connection in Albert Einstein's chart, for example. I think he had a, a Jupiter Uranus opposition. Um but there's or another one is um Steve Jobs had a Jupiter Uranus conjunction. Conjunction, that's right. That was yeah. the nineteen fifty that was the Jupiter Uranus, I think, in Cancer, I think. Nineteen fifty five ish, somewhere in there. Right. So um yeah, seeing where things are going and having it because Jupiter has far vision, but then Uranus is um even further out, and especially technologically speaking, sometimes. Yeah, and see it's interesting because I often think of and I think we talked about this in the September um, forecast, I always think of as Jupiter and Neptune as being a bit of um, the same planet with Saturn as an intermediary, that 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 they're both expansive, but but Neptune becomes dispersive because Jupiter has to answer to Saturn and Neptune doesn't answer to any restrictions. It, it can go infinitely distant and out. It can be, you know, there's no limitations to, to, to Neptune. Okay. But the Jupiter Uranus is significant because it's Uranus that gives Jupiter the ability to get beyond Saturn. Mm. Um, it's it's the there's no restriction, and so I think often with Jupiter and Uranus, they're they're both kind of young energies. They're 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 both. Um, they're both again. I don't. It's not that Uranus is expansive, but it's going somewhere. It's breaking free of something to to go somewhere new. There's a directionality to it. I think that gives it affinity um, to um, uh, um, that gives it affinity to to Jupiter. And yeah, there's Einstein's chart with the um, with the Jupiter Uranus opposition. Yeah, there we go. So Jupiter at 27 Aquarius and Uranus at uh, one degree of Virgo. And incidentally, when you look at his chart with uh, quintiles, uh, he has one of the most magical charts I've ever seen um, with, um, with multiple um, quintile patterns, uh, configurations of multiple planets, and that Jupiter Uranus actually forms uh, a, a major focal point in, in that. So, but yeah, uh, his, his chart is very Uranian. I mean, that's what he did. He, and you know, and we come back to this idea. Hold on, before, of, before you move on, we have to do a minor aspect episode. And we were talking about that earlier <laughs> that we've got to do that's the elephant in the room that we're going to keep coming back to anytime oh, I have man. a discussion with you. Minor aspect yeah. episode. If people want us to do a minor aspect episode, they should leave a comment letting us know on the YouTube. Not a minor aspect mode. An okay. Es an 
aspects, Sorry. yeah, non-Ptolemaic aspects, because when you look at charts like Einstein or so many other charts, right. you realize that when you're not looking at quintiles and septiles, you're, you're, it's like doing a chart without Neptune or Pluto in it. You're missing a whole dimension that if you don't know it's there, you're not going to miss it. Okay. But once you see that what you're missing is like, holy crap, I can't believe I ever did astrology without these. There's not, they're not minor. Well, maybe, maybe that, that would be a, an interesting analogy I'd like to explore is maybe, um, uh, Ptolemaic or major aspects are like the Newtonian realm. And, I, and, uh, and actually, I've come to call them physical and metaphysical aspects. Okay. Um, th because there's something, uh, uh, and again, we're, we're, we're going into a territory right. <laughs> we don't need to go into now. Yeah. Um, but but the thing about Uranus is that it delves into that whole thing of breaking out of whatever the status quo is, the Newtonian structure, whether it's going to quantum physics or Einstein. I mean, look, the thing about Einstein was that Einstein clearly showed that time and space were interrelated. Mm -hmm. And we as astrologers, what do we do? We map time and space. Right. You know, and so as we begin to realize that that time and space are somehow interconnected, Uranus becomes the the planet out beyond just looking at at things spatially or looking at things um what's the word I'm looking for causally. Because Saturn has it has, you know, a an Aristotelian causality to it. You know, that and when you get out to uh the outer planets the we lose that sense of timing because something happens in the unconscious that is outside of the realms of cause and effect it's the you know the breakthrough that happened in the um late 19th century um you know during the period of the um once every 400 year conjunction of Neptune and Pluto when you had Freud writing the interpretation of dreams that kind of set the pace for the whole depth psychology movement that you know now is part of our normal vocabulary and just way of 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 seeing ourselves in our own being you know yeah. so yeah it's all it's all fascinating but but uranus again becomes the planet that breaks out of the three-dimensional world of you what you see is what you get in fact, in computer realms, there's this term they call WYSIWYG, which is what you see is what you get on the screen, mm. as opposed to when we get into these quantum realms of uh, um, trans-Saturnian planets, it's, it turns out that it's WYSIWYG. What you see is not what you get. And that there's a whole, um, in quantum physics, David Boehm talked about the implicate and the explicate orders, and that astrology up to now has largely been about the ex explicate order, that which we see. Mm -hmm. Granted, Alice Bailey and that whole movement began looking at things that were esoteric rather than the exoteric. But what we begin to see is that there's a whole world under the surface of the ocean that we see the foaming, and yet there's an entire sea beneath it, and the outer planets begin beginning with Uranus um, show us what some of that stuff is, but they can be by themselves non-physical unless they connect mm. natally and or by transit with a physical planet, right. meaning one of the observable Hellenistic seven basic real planets. Yeah, that's when they become manifest. much more manifest or much more visible or obvious in a person's life when they're tied into one of those uh, seven traditional or visible planets. Yeah, I, I, I believe so. And, and so, but again, there's something about Uranus that reminds us 
that we don't see on the surface everything that's there until something pops. Mm-hmm. And that's the unpredictability. The You know, Uranus begs the question. I mean, you hear this over and over again in people that write um, about astrology. You know, Uranus is, um, is unpredictable, you know, right. I, but we predict the unpredictable. We say that something's going to happen to you, but we can't predict what it is. Right. You know, and predicting the unpredictable is peculiarly quantum because there's no way to know how it's going to manifest or when it's going to manifest. We have time ranges and we have approximations of probability. Right. Um, and so that becomes part of the weirdness of, of Uranus in general. Uranus has, and I know I said this on the um, September forecast that we did recently, but Uranus only has one job, and that job is to release tension. And the tension can be irresolvable. And, and in other words, we have tensions in our lives that, that we let go, we bury, because there's no solution. It may be a political point of view that we hold in a family where everyone else holds something else. And we know when we bring up our belief, it's just going to create discord and argument. So we go, yep, we have a difference here, but we're not going to talk about it ever again, kind Mm -hmm. of a thing. And Uranus takes those things that are irresolvable and it blasts lightning at it. And again, in nature, when you have a storm building, you have positive and negative charges. Mm. And when they try to work it out, when they rub up against each other, the positive becomes more positive, the negative becomes more negative. It's like a tug of war that gets tighter and tighter and tighter, and there's no resolution until... And when that lightning strikes in that one moment, you have Uranus, the awakener, the great Mm -hmm. awakener. The lights go on and you can see the mountains in the background and the power plant down the block and the old junk car across the street for that one moment when the lightning strikes in the dead of night. And then it's completely dark, but you know what's there. Mm -hmm. And that's Uranus's function. It's It's that instantaneous change of awareness that can't be predicted and it's somehow outside the realm of fate and free will because we can't predict the moment or what will happen when it occurs. We can only say that Uranus will release tension if it knows it's there. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's amazing. I love that example. It's also, incidentally, the whole basis of the quantum concept of particle and wave. Hmm. And and this is a, a, a pet piece of mine that I also don't want to delve into deeply here. <clears throat> but the fact is that we see planets as particles. We look at them in charts. And we map them as particles. Mm-hmm. We look at transits and we go, oh, transiting Uranus is going to be conjuncting this person's moon at um, 12 degrees of Taurus. It's a particle conjuncting another particle. Um, and yet, planets also travel like waves. And particle is like fate. It's like, this is what happens when these two things meet up. It's like two particles, like like billiard ball mechanics, Newtonian mechanics, right. whereas there's another thing going on, and that is the, the waveform behind the individual transits. And again, Uranus brings those things into focus because it's undeterminable. It's surprising. 
It's radical. It doesn't fit in. It's going to express whether dad, whether Saturn likes it or not, mm. whether the church likes it or not, whether authority likes it or not. It doesn't care what the ramifications will be afterwards. It is irrepressible. And the thing about an, a, an atomic explosion or lightning is that once you start the process, it cannot be stopped. Hmm. Once lightning begins to strike, it's going to follow through. And so therefore, it's outside of the realms of our control. It's again, trans-Saturnian, doesn't care about the rules. One of the things that makes me think of is, is um, especially in a character sense, that Uranus, it has this deep-seated drive where it has to be authentic to itself. Um, no matter what, or no matter what's going on around it, and that yeah. comes almost like its primary impulse in a character sense. I think I think that's true, but one has to be careful there because there are there are truly evil crazies <laughs> that are true to themselves, but themselves are somehow not true to good. Yeah, well, it doesn't have to mean that it has to be objectively good or in good taste or morally good. But it has this impulse to do that which it wants to do. And sometimes that can be very self-centered. Yeah. 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 Or very psychologically aberrated. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, aberrant is an interesting term. Uh it, it's a, it's an eccentricity. Yeah, it's, it's a e type of eccentricity. E e yeah. 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 So hmm. um okay. So going back to where were we? Where do, oh yeah, well, I want to mention Steve Jobs just really quickly, just because oh, yeah. he's got that um He's got Virgo rising, and he's got Jupiter at 20 Cancer and Uranus at 24 Cancer. And I always just think about um, in the 90s, he had this like really successful advertising campaign, and it was called um, Think Different. That was the tagline, was Think Different. And they would show images of all of these innovators like Einstein and like other people in different fields that were you know, far ahead of their time or who innovated and um, I think of that very much when it comes to him and some of the ways that he pushed and, he, and through Mac and through Apple pushed and for how much innovation. money he made off it. I think that conjunction in his chart is opposed Venus. I'm, I'm, yeah, it's opposite Venus at yeah. twenty one uh, Cancer. I mean, it's also square Neptune and it's also square Mars. Like and it's tied in. And also trine Saturn. Saturn is at that release point. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, and, and I use his chart as an example because it's also in his eleventh house, and yeah. it was through his partnership with um, Steve Wozniak, of course, who was the actual like tech guy early on. Whereas Steve was more like the idea and the marketing guy. Um, but he, it's through their friendship basically because they were like high school friends that they became. Yeah, and you, you know, know, and you know, the brilliance of that think different was the same advertising concept of, I think it was something tastes good as a cigarette should. Like, uh, lucky, 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 luckies taste good like a cigarette should. And, and it's incorrect grammar because it should have been as a cigarette should. Hmm. And by the same token, think different is incorrect. It should be think differently. It's an adverb, not an adjective. Okay. And it was done on purpose to be grammatically incorrect as an expression of the unique different. Nice. But it was, yes, it was a very successful advertising um, campaign. Yeah. Um, and just also just in terms of his pushing forwards, uh, the, the personal computer and having the foresight to see that like personal computing was the future and that this was going to be something that was going to change the world and that he wanted to be in the company that set that off and started that whole the personal computer revolution. Yeah. 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 
All right. Um, we have another quote from from Tarnas. So sort of coming full circle at this point, yeah. And going back to Richard Tarnas, who I've always put at the end because he has a good way of like summarizing the tradition pretty well. Yeah. Um. So who read the last one? Is it on me or you? I'll read it. Okay. Do it like dramatically though. I was meant like to hear these quotes. I always hear, I read them in my head very dramatically. So well, yeah. Okay. So talking about, this is from Cosmos and Psyche and talking about um, Uranus. 2006. Associated with the principle of change, rebellion, freedom, liberation, reform, and revolution, and the unexpected breakup of structures, with sudden surprises, revelations, awakening, lightning-like flashes of insight, the acceleration of thoughts and events, with births, and new beginnings of all kinds, and with intellectual brilliance, cultural innovation, technological invention, experiment, creativity, and originality. Well, that's a Proustian sentence. Mm. Um, Uranus transits are linked to unpredictable and disruptive changes. Hence, the planet is often referred to as the cosmic trickster. Another set of themes associated with Uranus is a concern with the celestial and the cosmic, with astronomy and astrology, with science and esoteric knowledge, and with space travel and aviation. With respect to personal character, Uranus is regarded as signifying the rebel and the innovator, the awakener, the individualist, the dissident, the eccentric, the restless, and the wayward. Mm. The boy sure can write long sentences. Yeah, thank you. That was very dramatic. I liked that reading. Um, all right, so that's a lot there. A lot. One of the things that's maybe worth mentioning here, from a, this gets into more historical things, but one of the things that he's doing a little bit in that modern astrologers, there was a drift where in the second century, like when you look at like Valens or even the medieval period, they associated Mercury with astrologers, partially yeah. because astrologers were like translators of the stars or also like messengers of, yeah. of fate or of the stars or what have you. But in modern times, more and more Uranus started becoming associated with astrology. Um, and like I've I've sort of wrestled with that of like why that is and to what extent that's true or not true or why do you think that is, or why, from your perspective, why why is why would astrology make the argument for if you defend that argument? I don't know, or what's the rationale for it? Well, before I make the argument for it, I'd okay. like to make an argument against any one to one correspondences from planets to real things. Okay, I, I think that they they're great teaching tools, and often they're very useful. Yeah, but often they they don't tell the whole picture. Yeah, and, um, and astrologers have a tendency to get hung up on these absolutely. debates. Like there, there this can, means that there can only be one association between this thing. And that planet or what have you? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, to quote a, a favorite word of Rick Tarnas's, um, the archetypes are multivalent, right? Um, and that is, there's many ways for them to hang and connect. Um, and um, but 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 I do think that I mean there is a mercurial aspect to astrology. There's also a Saturnian aspect to astrology. I mean, after all, it's about time, time, Kronos. Right. right. I mean, when we look at a chart, we're basically keeping cosmic time. Mm. On the other hand, 
there's something about astrology that's outside the limits of the status quo of of science. I mean, you read books by great scientists, even though some of them were astrologers, that gets conveniently set aside. The Johannes Kepler, for example. Yeah. Um, but and, and I think that's it. I think that's actually the reason why astrologers came to associate astrology with Uranus more and more because of astrology was on the outs from society by the time astrology was revived in the late 19th and early 20th century yeah. and it was associated with sort of like fringe things with like um spiritualism and the new age movement and other things that were viewed as um uh something that was not part of like normal society but yeah i agree and but and yet there's also a futuristic te technological, especially now that astrology is so intimately tied up with um, computer calculations, computer graphics, research work on computers. Right. Um, I mean, it seems like the interface of astrology and energetic medicine, and you know, you, you had people like Nikola Tesla saying, "To know the secrets of the universe, you need to know about you know a frequency and vibration." Um, you know, that's. These, and, and that's all astrology is. Astrology is the study of frequency and vibration, very low frequency and very long wave vibrations. But I, I think there's a Uranian that's, that's aspect. Your, that's your argument because you think that the planets on their orbits out there are emitting sort of like a very low frequency, almost like noise? I, I, I think so. I think Tesla thought so too, although he did not go there to astrology because he did not know anything about it. Hmm. Um, but you know, when you when you extend the electromagnetic spectrum from from cosmic rays and the visible light that we see that are, I mean, we see the color green at you know several hundred trillion cycles a second, and yet we have Pluto at four cycles a millennium. <laughs> and so, yes, I think that that there is something astrological that is actually tied into the very fabric of how the cosmos work. And I don't think we've fully grappled with or integrated th that, um, but I think that that's part of the Iranian aspect of astrology is that it is sitting just outside uh, of Saturn, and yet it has enough strength and and intellectual com comprehensive intellectual um, integration to it, self integration to its uh, integration to itself. That it has the power to disrupt and um, and to change everything that we know about science, which is why science resists it so strongly. I mean, scientists go out of their way to fake data and to misrepresent astrology, either because of ignorance or because of very purposeful intent, because astrology somehow seems to destroy the concept of uh, a lot of the basis of of science, which basically says time is an independent variable. If I drop something, you know, today it's going to accelerate at 32 feet per second per sec second. And if I do it next Tuesday or in a thousand years at a different time of day, scientific laws do not, uh, are not affected by time. And so astrology is totally confrontational to the very underpinning of the idea of repeatability in science. And here we have, this is Uranus's territory. You right. can't repeat a Uranus event. I mean, Uranus happens in ways that are, I, I, in my life, I remember one major Uranus transit changed my life. And for years, I'd been looking forward to when Uranus went through mid-Sagittarius, it would complete a grand trine in my chart when Uranus would go over my, my descendant in, in mid-Sagittarius. 
and it would form a trine with my Aries stellium and with Pluto um, in, in Leo. And I thought, man, this would be a time in my life when I would find freedom and I would find all those Uranian things and it would be amazing. And within a couple of days of um, Uranus hitting the exact descendant point, um, I was living in Southern California at the time. I was roller skating almost every day. My typical run would be Santa Monica to Venice Pier. Um, it was you know several miles and that was what I was doing for exercise. And this particular beautiful day, I had skated out to the end of Venice Pier, and I looked out and I saw Santa Barbara and or Malibu and, and Catalina Island, and it was just magnificent. And I took a deep inhalation, and the next thing I knew, I was on the ground, spread-eagled, face down, my hand was bleeding, and it was like all I could think of was I was struck by lightning. And I ended up getting blood poisoning, even though I got a tetanus shot that same day, and I spent 10 days in the hospital and I couldn't use my right hand for about two and a half, three months. Disability, long story, but it changed my life because I was at that time um, managing a computer facility. I had 20 some odd people responsible to me in downtown LA. My astrology books were in boxes in the garage and I was doing what I thought I needed to be doing at that point in my life. And this was basically Uranus saying, okay, you're not in control. We're taking over. Mm. And it was not an easy time. It was not fun. It was like Yellowstone having been burnt to the ground, but being Yellowstone. And I mean, I, I, I couldn't eat soup. I couldn't shave. I couldn't button my pants. I couldn't brush my teeth. I, my left hand was pretty worthless. What was the transit again? Uranus trining my son, Mercury, Venus, Mars, and Pluto and conjuncting my descendant, completing a grand trine. It, Uranus was on your descendant? Uranus was in Sagittarius on my descendant. Okay, so it was opposite your Opposite ascendant. my ascendant, yeah. and completing a fire grand trine. Okay. And I always thought, oh, how cool. Now, looking back at it you know, 30 years ago, wow, it was cool, because it made me have this reminder. I can't bend this knuckle. This knuckle is gone from this accident, but it's a physical reminder of how it doesn't matter whether what I'm doing fits into the outer world, whether my wife or my bank account is going to like it. I can't just live a life that is normal. I have to let that Uranus fly. Mm. And and I never stopped doing it. I literally had stopped doing astrology. Um, just there was no okay. place for it in my life. You were trying to go back. This is the period where you're trying to go back to the normal world and work like a computer job instead of being an astrologer. In effect, and yeah. then part of your lesson was that you had to let your freak flag fly, so to speak, as they say. As they say. As they say, and you've been an astrologer wearing astrology T-shirts for ever, ever since, since. Then? Okay. Yeah, and and it was more than just astrology. It was music and poetry and other things. That, but the, but the point is is that Uranus doesn't give a crap whether what happens is nice or not to you. Its job is to explode whatever it is that is buried mm. and whatever it is you're not dealing with. I mean, and I in my mind I say, you know, Uranus looked at the situation and said, "You're obviously not in control of this in the way that it needs to be. We're taking over. Well, we're, we're taking you out of the picture temporarily." And if it was on your descendant, then that means that was also your Uranus opposition, basically, roughly at the same time or coming up on it. Um, it was still coming up on it. It was about three years away because my Uranus is late. But I see it's like I but use yes, whole sign still, aspects, and then, so then, then yes, then it started. Then yes, okay. 
Um, so, cause I just, I want to say that cause it means it was also activating something that was in your first house to begin with, which yes. is like, you've got to be Uranian. And if you're not being true to that, then it's going to remind you of what, what you got to be sometimes very, um, roughly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But again, the important thing is it was a trine, which shatters the idea. Oh, trines are lovely. And what I bullshit. And secondly, that, you know, uh, that the Uranus creating a grand trine would be in the moment a positive. I mean, it was the, it was the hardest months of my life. I thought my life was over. Wait, but what was the medical thing that happened to you? Um, I had tetanus, so I had blood poisoning. I was on intravenous. Oh, it was tetanus, okay. Yeah. I had, Did you I was cut on, yourself on something or what? I landed on the pier and who knows what was on the edge of the pier. I cut oh, myself. Cut yourself and you get tetanus. I had, okay. I had two operations on my hand. Okay. Um, I ended up having what's called necrosis of the joint. My joint disappeared. It just got dissolved. Mm. Um, and I was on disability because I, I couldn't drive the car. I had no use of my right hand. I mean, yeah. and, and, and there was a whole metaphor there of right hand control, right hand, left brain. And um, yeah. And and again, I didn't mean to over-personalize this only to the extent that Uranus happens in a way that we don't necessarily expect. And yet it is an awakener. <clears throat> it opens up our minds. It changes the status quo. It was in an instant. That, that thing, whatever it was that happened. And the only way I can describe it was I was struck by metaphysical lightning. I was right. standing still. I never wore hand guards. I never fell, you know? And I'm standing still and all of a sudden, kapow, I'm on the ground. <clears throat> and Uranus works that way, suddenly and without without warning. Yeah, definitely. Um, I had Uranus transiting my ascendant when I discovered astrology. Uh, my ascendant's at like 17 Aquarius. And so when, when Uranus hit 17 Aquarius, Suddenly, I discovered that there was like a lot more to the world than I thought there was, and it was a very rapid period of change and finding something I was passionate about, but also something that was very weird and that would, you know, be a very weird thing in terms of deciding to pursue that while I was still in high school as my primary profession, but also finding something I was so excited about that I decided to to um, dedicate my life to it. Yeah. Um, so I'm mentioning that just to go back to that question of like astrology and Uranus. And one of the things you mentioned earlier was science and astrology being on the out, being on the outs with science. And I think that could be a point for understanding that is just in when astrology was revived in the 20th century, it is on the outskirts of science and it is not generally accepted by um, the establishment of how the universe works and what our current knowledge of the cosmos is in terms of mainstream, especially academic or, or establishment science or academia or what have you. So maybe that's part of the reason as well. Yes, but I come back to Doc in the, you know, in Back to the Future, and he probably could have in circles and diagrams and arrows explained exactly what was going on, even though it seemed like it shouldn't work. It seems like astrology shouldn't work. Yeah. Well, and that's what I always say. I say that a lot on the podcast. I mean, astrology like shouldn't work. But for some reason, it does. It shouldn't work in the sense that it doesn't really match with what we know about um, the way that the universe works. It's at the Niels Bohr. The universe is not stranger than you think. It's stranger than you can think. Right. That's that's astrology. Yeah. Well, and part of the point there was just like just because something like quantum mechanics goes completely against. Um, you know, New Newtonian mechanics doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. It just means there's different layers to different powers of the microscope. Yeah, or the the universe, or what have you. Yeah, yeah. So 
um, I, I know this is your show, but my question now becomes, so knowing what we know about Uranus, mm -hmm. how do we work with it? When we, when we have a client who's come, let's come back to the person with, we look at the chart and we notice that their moon is at 14 degrees of, of, of Taurus. And we know that Uranus in the sky now is at eight or 10 degrees or whatever it is. Yeah. What, what, how do we approach that? What do we tell the client who's coming into this personalization of this shock treat, celestial shock treatment? Well, let's say, let's use an example of, cause there's two major Uranus time periods that everybody gets. And one of them is the Uranus square. That's kind of around 21 ish. Yeah. And then there's also the um, Uranus opposition, which is much more. And that's the one you were experiencing partially yes. or the build yeah, up yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, the, the, in society, people talk about like the midlife crisis where, you know, the guy uh, decides to, you know, throw everything out and leave his marriage and like buy a sport red sports car or what have it's you. The image that I always use. <laughs> yeah, the, for quit, the Uranus opposition. Quit, 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 the, quit the job, leave the marriage, leave the kids, and you know, buy a red Ferrari and drive it across country. Here. Yeah, and just that sudden like need for like freedom and getting rid of all your op not just restrictions but obligations and yeah. responsibilities yeah. and yeah. to you know feel young again and all those other things um that some of those are, are very much core uranus things anytime you're having a major uranus transit yeah so the the thing is is just to figure out the balance between um overthrowing some things in your life that can be overthrown or should be overthrown versus not wanting to wake up the next morning having just like torched and set fire to everything in your life and thinking what have i done and we're what... back to the saturn uranus dilemma yeah how, how how do i make radical change without losing those things which i've spent years to build that uh that can be still good for me if i can figure out a way to alter them to allow me to change yeah or, or just figure out what is constructive change versus what is purely destructive and pointless change that's there, better <laughs> there's the other there's a version of uranus which is like the the joker in um the dark knight you know from like the late 2000s which is just like some people just want to watch the world burn and yeah. there's a version of uranus that just wants to be fully chaotic it just chaos for chaos's sake or anarchy for anarchy's sake and have everything break down and just watch it burn. And sometimes that can be an impulse um, under a heavy Uranus transit. And sometimes that's necessary. I mean, sometimes, like in your instance, that ended up being a, a very traumatic and difficult and sudden and unexpected thing. But um, the loss of those parts of your life and that sudden U turn that things took ended up being constructive in the long term. In the long term. So sometimes that's necessary, even if painful in the short term. Um, but yeah, there can also sometimes be when it's a, a matter of choices that we're making, when it's not something that's external and being imposed upon us, that can be uh, unclear about whether you're making constructive changes or you're making purely destructive yeah. ones. Yeah, and and I think that's true. But I also think that sometimes it's difficult to manage Uranus. Yeah, you're not uh, gonna, no. because again, it gets back to that concept that once lightning begins to strike, we're not going to stop it. And here's something about lightning that a lot of people don't know. When lightning strikes, it actually begins usually with multiple paths, hmm. like five or six or eight paths all at the same time. And it ends up somehow along the way, taking the path of least resistance and focusing all the energy, even though it's already been fragmented, all the energy into one place. Okay. 
which is kind of crazy. So Uranus in our life is going to do that same thing. It's yeah. going to take the course of least resistance to get the maximum effect, maximum effect, whether it's graceful or not. But sometimes it also does that of opening up multiple paths at once, and then you and quickly- where we're, and and here's where I I mean I think that astrology can be useful because. Rather than telling you know a client, oh my God, you're approaching your Uranus opposition or this Uranus transit, everything in your life's going to fall apart and blah blah blah, right. you know, is begin to think about what your ideal life would be and what you could do now, two years before the transit, to begin to bring some of those things into your life because mm-hmm. Uranus only strikes when there's tension. Mm. You know, granted, we mostly see the Uranian things happening as these massive events. But if we're being Uranian um, proactively and effectively, mm-hmm. then that transit will come like, um, like, like Sam Reynolds talked about Jupiter, and it'll just go, oh, you're doing the right thing. Here's more of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll just magnify, it, it'll meet your, you know, your, your donation, so to speak. Um, it'll meet that with, you know, with the cosmic uh, acknowledgement. And so Uranus transits do not have to be disruptive. Um, they just, they have to remind us of what we need to be doing rather than what we're doing. Okay. Um, yeah. And we did an episode. I wanted to mention to people that if they go back and look at episode 197, we did a whole episode. There was a workshop that was recorded at the Mercury Cafe with a, an audience of participants where we did Uranus transits through each of the 12 houses. Oh, nice. And we both talked about you know what those should mean theoretically and what we've seen in practice and we also took some examples from the audience of people sharing their stories about what uranus transits through certain houses meant for them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so people should check that out for like a detailed analysis of uranus transits um is there anything else going back to tarnus to mention or or that we haven't dwelled upon so far in terms of um, space travel aviation you know, I mean the you know the Star Wars, Star Trek, um, you know even now you know billionaires in space. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that Uranus associated with Kitty Hawk, you know, with the or, with aviation in general, or just like futurism and sci-fi, futurism, yeah. like you know sci-fi and thinking forward into the far future and projecting out science and technological developments. You know, into the far future is a very like Uranian type thing. Yeah, in terms of that that forward thinking component and that technological advancement component. Yeah. Um. All right. Let's you know, see. And, and the and the other thing is that people with strong Uranus natally, I mean, they just don't fit into a mold. Right. I. I. I one of the um ones that come to mind. Um, is someone who actually shares my solar degree. Um, that's all we share. Um, and that's Ram Das, mm. who is a 16 degree Aries sun that is closely conjunct Uranus. Okay. And, you know, here's a Harvard, you know, tenured Harvard psychology professor, you know, who basically um, ends up wearing white robes and beads, and um, and 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 takes a an Indian mystic as his guru, after being fired um, with uh, Tim Leary, who was another Uranus. I think Tim had, I think I think his Libra son was square. Your now he, I think it was a Uranus sun square. I'm I'm not quite sure. Ramdas, I have his chart because I discovered it a few years ago, and he has one one of the most like traditionally dignified charts I've ever seen, which I always thought was interesting because I don't know a ton about him, but I found that 
Um, yeah, I know a ton about him because I think I first encountered him at a public lecture when I was about 19. And so I, I have a, a great deal of affinity toward his work and his storytelling. And so for uh, those listening to the audio version, he has um, 18 Cancer Rising with Jupiter exalted in Cancer uh, at 11 Cancer, sort of close to the Ascendant. Um, the sun is exalted at 15 degrees of Aries in the 10th mm -hmm. house, conjunct Uranus at 15 degrees of Aries, mm -hmm. as well as the North Node at 14 Aries. Venus is exalted at uh, six degrees of Pisces in the ninth house. Mm -hmm. Saturn, Saturn's in its domicile traditionally at 22 Capricorn near the descendant. Um, the moon is one of the only planets that's not doing anything dignity-wise. It's at seven degrees of Sagittarius in the sixth, but look at this. Mars is actually in Leo, which is not one of the signs of its dignity. But what's funny about that is it's actually in a mutual reception with the sun, which is in Aries. So the sun and Mars are actually have a sort of temporary dignity by exchanging signs. And then finally, Mercury is just at like uh, four degrees of Taurus in the 11th. When we talk about quintiles, we will see that Ramdas has one of the most magically quintiled charts you could possibly imagine. Okay. Um, so, so quickly again, you were saying about just for those that aren't familiar with his life and his work, he was a tenured professor who decided to- Well, he was a tenured professor who, along with Tim Leary, realized the psychological ramifications of LSD and, and mushrooms. Mm -hmm. um, and although they were legal at the time, um, they were dismissed from Harvard, both of them together. Um, In like the 1960s? It, yeah, I think 1964, I think. Um, and, um, and Ram Das went off to India and became a disciple of Neem Karoli Baba. And um, and yet he was a psychoanal he was a professor of psychoanalytic psychology. Okay, and um, and just brilliant, and um, and he wrote probably his most famous book. Although I must say that he was much better in person than in any of his books. But he wrote a book that became a mainstay of the 1960s, and the name of the book was called "Be Here Now." Hmm. When anyone says "Be Here Now," they're quoting Ram Das. Okay, <laughs> and Aries, be here now, and um, and and later on in his life, he wrote um, another piece um, that was called "Be Old Now," um, and, and "Fierce Grace." He's he's been a spiritual teacher that has has um, guided a, um, several, a couple, at least a couple of generations, and um, and anyone who's never heard him. Um, you know, you can find talks of his on on uh, YouTube. I know, and he's just a brilliant storyteller and just a real co a conscious light um, in the 20th century. Um, and I he passed away just a few years just ago. Just a couple years ago. Yeah, <clears throat> I forgot something there because there's actually one more piece of dignity that I forgot, which is that his moon, which is in Sagittarius, is actually oh. exchanging signs with Jupiter, which is in Cancer. So those are in a sort of mutual reception of sorts oh, as well. Yep. So even the moon, it's really only Mercury is literally like the only planet, traditionally at least, that doesn't have some sort of either domicile exaltation or mutual reception. I always thought that was was interesting and meant to look into him yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. Um, all right. But another sun conjunct Uranus, who was like totally, there's never been anyone quite like him. Mm. Right. Okay. Um, so one of the things we do sometimes is a uh, planetary combination since we're getting towards the end of this. Sure. So you mentioned Sun, Uranus, and just like providing some quick delineations of some of these placements. One of the ones that I think is always interesting because it's kind of antithetical is like a Venus-Uranus combinations, like let's say hard aspects, because 
you know, Venus um, tends to bring things together and it represents like marriage and relationships and unions and reconciling and all these nice things. Whereas Uranus tends to be disruptive and tends to be erratic and tends to be unstable. So I always see Venus and um, Uranus is kind of like an antithetical planetary combination. Yes, but <clears throat> I, I, another word for Uranus is unconventional. I don't think we use that word yes, by itself. Unconventional. And when I see Venus Uranus um, in a hard aspect, um, uh, my daughter, who's a Scorpio, who hate would 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 disown me as a parent if she knew I was using this. But she won't ever listen to this, so it's okay. Okay. Um, she, actually, she. Talked, I talked to her years ago on like MySpace, <laughs> and she thanked me. She was so excited. I remember talking to her one year on MySpace because she was excited that there were like young people that were interested oh, yeah, yeah. in astrology, and that her dad wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just like yeah. an old generation thing. No, it, was, it was she's come a long way. Okay, um, but but she she has a very close Venus Uranus conjunction. Okay, very close. And um, and as a kid growing up, I could walk into a store with her, walk around the store and come to the front, and I would know exactly what she would bring to the front of the store saying, Dad, look at this. And it was the strangest piece of art that it was high quality in the store, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and, and I think that people with Venus-Uranus connections have a very eccentric taste for what is valuable. Yeah. And that is true both in material art forms and she's a curator. That's her her work is cur is art curation. That's perfect. Okay. Um so but unconventional tastes. Unconventional um eccentric. Again, the orbit that is in a different orbit than everyone else's. Right. And um and so that that is true with art and of things of value in general. But in relationships, it's often the person who is attracted to um, relationships that are unconventional. Mm -hmm. Now, again, this is a definition based upon temporal, cultural, yeah. social norms. Relative to whatever the current to, time uh, is and current culture is. Exactly. Right. Um, but in no way, in my observation, does it represent difficulty or lack of satisfaction or bad luck in love hmm. unless you're trying to fit the proverbial round peg into a, a square peg into a round hole right so that's sometimes when uh the uranus either as a natal placement or a signature or as a transit can run into issues as if they're they're trying to do the conventional thing exactly and, and then, there are cultures in which if you don't do the conventional thing you get killed right yeah. <laughs> you know so i'm not making light of that i'm just saying that even though we think of those two energies as so different it's like venus and saturn we think of them different but boy when they work they're magical Mm. You know, and so I think the same with Venus and, and Uranus, but it is an attraction toward that which is different. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's a good one. I like that. And that somebody asked me to like next time to specify what aspects we're talking about and to break down each one, but there's no way to do that because there's way too many aspects. And we're just talking about what happens when you bring those energies together. And while different aspects are going to modify that in different ways that are going to be more stark yeah. or more flowing. Uh, you know, we're just talking about when they're configured in some way. Yeah, this is what you're going to get in exactly one way or another. Yeah, exactly. All right, so we could spend an entire episode on Venus Uranus, but let's do 
Mars. Mars Uranus. Yeah, Mars Uranus. Um, I, I think I talked about Angela Davis's chart. Radical, revolutionary, mm. um, was uh, tried but never convicted for supplying a gun in the Black Panther uh, party stuff in, in Berkeley. She's a double PhD in philosophy and professor emeritus um, at the University of California um, and was a student of Herbert Marcuse, who's a radical um, 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 uh, r- a radical sociologist um, and has been she's been a long time uh, Marxist. Um, but um, and does, does she have oh yeah, so Hello. I was hoping I remembered it correctly. So she has a Mars a Mars um, uh, yeah, Mars Uranus conjunction. That's part of an air grand trine. Here's a double PhD in radical politics. Okay, so her, for the audio listeners, her Uranus is at she has Taurus rising, and Uranus is at four degrees of Gemini, and Mars is at six degrees of Gemini. So that's a very close conjunction. And Neptune is at four degrees of Libra trine, and the Sun is at five degrees of Aquarius conjunct the South Node at six mm. trine. That's a pretty intense and powerful. Um, uh, air grand trine, and she's an intellectually solid being who started off. I mean, when I was in college, Chris, um, for about a year and a half, you could not pick up the New York Times. I went to college outside of New York City. You could not pick up the newspaper without her picture being on the front page every two or three days. That's how radical and and uh, popular or unpopular she was, depending upon your politics of the time. Um, and she settled into a long-term teaching career and is still quoted and, you know, recognized as being, you know, so her, her politics are very radical, but she put her life on the line back in the sixties. And that Mars Uranus conjunction to me is often the person who will become, who, who is physically radical, someone who is willing to put their body on the line to express you know, that which is, again, unconventional outside of the realms of authority. Um, it, it, it can be the social rebel. It can be the person, you know, who might be, you know, considered to be difficult to be with because they're always starting fights or whatever. That uh, It doesn't have to be always that, you know, at that end of the spectrum. But it's the person who's going to stand up for the rights of others also. Yeah, because Mars can be the impulse to fight and Uranus can be the rebel or the revolutionary. And so you put those together and it's the person that's like fighting against or wanting to overthrow the establishment, especially if there's a higher ideal of something that you're fighting against and, and of an ideal that of a forward thinking or future thinking ideal of the way things should be. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, um, Muhammad Ali's chart came to mind and I don't know that he has, uh, he, I think he had Mars and Taurus. And so I don't think I guess he could have had Uranus. No, his Uranus would have been in Gemini. I, I, it, there's, but there, but it's that speed and agility that whether he has that in his chart or not is he's an example of how in sports figures you often see Mars Uranus as people who are incredibly fast. Mm. Whether they're uh, um, you know a fast runner or fast reaction, their their reactive capabilities are are incredibly incredibly fast. Do we have anything? Uh, no, sorry, that's still Angela Davis. Davis. Hold on, Muhammad Ali. I may be totally off base here. Mars. Well, oh, he has the Saturn. Saturn Uranus is what it is. Yeah, I mean it's kind of a co-present, and it's, uh, and it's co-present with, with Mars, but it's not that. It's not that. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's still a 
yeah, Mars in the tenth tenth whole sign house for for me and Uranus and Saturn and, yeah, and Taurus in the tenth. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. So with Mars. Oh, but his but his Uranus is trying the Sun. Um, and is trying Neptune. That's the where is he? I mean, he's so fast you couldn't even use a blur. Mm. So, so even though it's not Mars Uranus, it's Uranus in a grand trine. So he he does have the Uranus active. Yeah, and and going back to the chart we talked about previously, but the the U.S. chart, of course, of the United States of America for the signing of the Declaration of Independence and literally starting the Revolutionary War, basically at this point, um, was this this. Uh, so I'm bringing up your chart. Yeah, get out of there. <laughs> this Mars Uranus conjunction in in Gemini around yes. around that time period. Yep, yep, yep. There we go. So Mars Uranus in Gemini that brings up, um, you know, something that's kind of relevant here. That's a little bit weird, which is the thing that astrologers started noticing a little under a century after the U.S. was founded, which is like once Uranus came back to Gemini. And back to the sign that Uranus is in when the U.S. was born, that was the um, Civil War. That the Civil War happened upon the Uranus return of the United States, where it would have not just been coming back to the natal sign of Gemini eighty something, eighty four years later, but also going over that Mars as well. And then there was this major catastrophic, you know, war um, in the United States at that time. And then weirdly. One year in a cycle later, once Uranus came back World to Gemini again, World War II in the 1940s, um, and we have Uranus coming around for its third return. Roughly, yeah. there's uh, roughly Uranus's third return. This is this is like the Jupiter Saturn confluence at age 60, mm. where five Jupiter returns is two Saturn returns. Roughly, the Pluto return is the third on um, the Uranus return. Mm. Not exactly, but it's you know it's it's 84 times three is about 240. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's you know ever since one of the very first podcast episodes when I did one with Nick Degan Best about his book on astrology and Uranus in oh, the yeah. United States chart. Yeah, um, we've been astrologers have been speculating this for a long time of you know is there going to be some other major conflict or war when Uranus goes into Gemini and Uranus has its third um, return. return? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that's Mars Uranus. Mm-hmm. I think we can leave it at that. There's yeah. probably other yeah, and Mars Jupiter. Things. We kind of already did with Steve Jobs. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, with um, with Jupiter Uranus, right? Um, and Jupiter and Uranus just love being together. There, I mean, I've um, a number of years ago, I did an article for the Mountain Astrologer on the Jupiter Uranus cycle. I think it's about a thirteen, maybe four, thirteen year cycle, something like that. Mm. And um, it's just fascinating the technological breakthroughs that yeah. occur, technological innovation, Te- technological innovation. Um, um, growth and, and like qu- even though it's it's a weird phrase, but quantum leaps in like technology, even though the phrase quantum leap is kind of a weird phrase. No, but with. that but I'm glad you said that because when we talked about earlier Uranus being the quantum planet, hmm. the changes that Uranus seems to be related to are often like quantum leaps. And what's a quantum leap? A quantum leap is a change between two points that are, is instantaneous. You know, it's it's a jump that does not respect time or space. It's just boom there. That's what a quantum leap is, and Uranus certainly does that. Yeah, it's just a funny phrase because like the the phrase quantum leap in the past couple of decades has come to mean like a leap very far into far forward, basically in some ways. But in the quantum realm is like very small, so it should literally mean like a very small leap. But in actual usage, it means a, a yeah. far leap into the future. Well, I would say that the quantum 
that the association of quantum with the very small is actually a limited way of understanding it hmm. because if as above if we really believe you know the you know the the emerald tablet concept you know of as above so below the within and the without of things are one and the same we're just existing on some midpoint between the you know the greater and the in the lesser hmm. well therefore those same things that happen at the what we call the subatomic level where quantum physics occurs it is my strong contention that that is what happens at the macrocosmic level and that's why you have these space-time disorientations you have you have um, what Rick Tarnas calls not synchronicity but diachronicity where you have connections not in the same moment but across time and so um and so yeah I think quantum is also about the very 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 large not just the very 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 small okay that makes sense um Okay, so Jupiter sudden Saturn. changes. Okay, yeah, and then we come to the sad. Um, I'm sorry, you you were gonna say. I was just gonna see if there's anything else about Jupiter we should mention, but maybe that's good. Um, sudden fortune, like that's the like lottery winning sort of. Yeah, can is. be transit. Yeah. Um, sudden unexpected good fortune. Uh, all right, let's go to Saturn Uranus, and that, this is something we've also talked about because it's very present this year. It's the main outer planet aspect that's happening in 2021 into 2022. We just had. What was it? The second pass, like last month. Yep. And one of the things that happened was the the sudden and rapid and somewhat unexpected just um, fall of the Afghanistan government that had been in power for twenty years, and suddenly over the course of a few weeks or a month, it just crumbled, and all of a sudden the the Taliban um, overthrew it and came back into power, and yep. the and the U.S. departed at the same time. Yeah, and let's remember though that there is still a third and possibly a fourth shoe to fall. Um, because there will be another Uranus-Saturn square on Christmas Eve Eve, and then next fall, um, I think September, October, it will come back within about a half a degree. And so I don't think we're done with that whole scenario yet. But, okay. Um, but the-, the um, Something I forgot to mention in that forecast when we talked about that was the Uranus, the, the Afghanistan government, there was actually a, a birth time for it because astrologers with Astro Data Bank were watching when that government was formulated in December of 2001 and it had Taurus rising. Yeah. So that's the reason why Uranus stationing in mid August, I think, was so important and tied in with the Saturn Uranus square was because um, that, that government for 20 yeah, years may have actually, had Taurus rising. We, we, we went over that in, with my apprentice, in my apprentice program, which I run through Patreon, hmm. and we had you know Nick's uh, book of Nick Campion's book of world horoscopes and had that data in it. And okay. we actually called that chart up and looked at it in his transits. You know? Nice. Yeah. Cool. Um, other Saturn. Saturn Uranus is just uh, if Saturn is the structures, then Uranus is the destabilization of that. So destabilization of structures, but also maybe reorientation of structures or figuring out um, pushing the boundaries of them maybe forward in some way. That that's back to Rob Hand's irresistible force meets immovable object. Mm. I when I see Saturn um, Saturn Uranus together in a chart. I, I often ask the person some variation, um, asking them, it, it, well, it, it's almost like, I hate authority, I am authority. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the iconoclast that basically says, but I have the real goods. And um, I don't know if you have Bob Dylan's chart handy, um, but I, I think he has the Saturn Uranus conjunction in 19, I think it was 1941. Okay. I might be off a little bit here. Let me see. 
Uh, I may not have it. Okay, not a big deal. Um, but 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 it's that it's it's that whole, again. It's the I hate authority. I am authority. It's the um. Uh, oh, well done. So. Yeah, it's 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 it and and it ha- it it has the it it has the moon enclosed, um, uh, the moon confined by the Saturn Uranus, which is only six degrees orb, but yeah. that's a crazy stellium. So for the audio listeners, Sat- yeah. Saturn's at twenty is uh, Sag rising, and then Saturn at twenty Taurus, the moon at twenty one Taurus, Uranus at twenty six Taurus, and then Jupiter at twenty nine Taurus. So it's a very tight stellium of planets there. Yeah, and all in the sixth house, but it's certainly and 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 actually he, the Jupiter Uranus is the closer of those, but it really is all of them mixed together. But Uranus is in the mix, and you and you want to talk about being you know breaking every rule and going against the grain. I remember Bob Dylan. People forget that in the 1964 Newport Folk Festival, Bob Dylan got booed off stage. Uh, people do forget that you're going to have to explain to our younger audience. Of like who Bob 20 Dylan year old is? Who's, well, look, <laughs> even I'm dealing with this at this point. I'm, my, I'm in my mid 30s, oh. and suddenly I realized my pop culture references are no longer valid. Um, yeah, valid and re- so so you're going to have to do some work too. To- well, so arguably, when um, in in the 1960s, early mid 60s, um, Bob Dylan was the singular greatest pop hero in the United States, probably equal to the Beatles, Okay, which puts them in a class of their own. And often it was Dylan and the Beatles that were considered to be like, you know, the difference was that the Beatles were electric rock and roll and Dylan came up through the Woody Guthrie folk tradition. And, but was, but his songs, his early songs, like the times they are changing um, and um, blowing in the wind. I mean, this, this guy has written more songs that have been covered by more people than than anyone ever. Right. And um, and in 1964, he was playing the Newport Folk Festival. Wasn't um, all along the Watchtower technically like a, a, a Bob Dylan song that Hendrix covered? Oh, not technically. It was off it was of John Wesley Harden. Yeah, literally. Was, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 No, but 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 Dylan's song library is crazy. I mean, as songs mm-hmm. that that other people did also. In fact. The birds kind of came to their fame and fortune. And another 1960s group for those of you who are, you know, you know, not not of that age. Yeah. Um, but the birds had hits like Mr. Tambourine Man, um, Chimes of Freedom, um, Sonny and Cher. Um, I just want to be your friend, and all I really want to do is be friends with you. And and uh, there's a few other. But all these, the, all these acts basically were doing Dylan covers. Okay. And actually, when Dylan heard the birds do his version, the versions of his stuff electrically, that got Dylan turned on to using an electric guitar. In 1964, I think it was maybe 65. Um, he came to the Newport Folk Festival, played a set, was like the hero of that entire world, came back and played a second set with an electrical band, um, an electric guitar, and he was booed off stage, called the traitor. Hmm. And in some ways, it was Dylan that created the whole synthesis of the folk tradition with the electric, um, electric tradition. And in fact, after a motorcycle accident, Dylan kind of went into reclusion and recorded a whole bunch of stuff 
um, from his home in Woodstock, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and his backup band that he toured with for several years was later on went to become known as The Band. That was Dylan's studio backup group. Mm. Um, and I mean, when Dylan was on tour, he had like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers for uh, a year was his um, was his backup band on tour. Mm. I mean, Dylan was an icon. Still is. He's like 80, what is he? He's like 82 years old. Right. And, um, and was recently awarded the Nobel Prize, the only poet um, uh, songwriter, singer-songwriter to ever cross that boundary and be awarded a Nobel Prize for his contribution to literature. Okay. And so, so but he was total. he was with Joan Baez, the white boy that with Joan Baez did the freedom rides in the South and he sang at the 1964 Martin Luther King, um, uh, I Have a Dream um, um, gathering uh, protest in, um, in, in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Dylan performed uh, one song that was about the death of Medgar Evers, a, a, civil, uh, a, a black man that was um, you know, uh, shot mm-hmm. um, in Mississippi, I think. Um, and so Dylan ba- basically invented the genre of what became known as protest songs. Yeah, I, I know the like Hurricane Reuben Carter was Her- another one that wrote that he, song. He wrote he wrote her the story of the hurricane, right? Um, to, but- to to bring um, focus to the plight of this guy that was falsely imprisoned. Exactly, and this was way before it was quote unquote fashionable. Right. I mean, in the mid '60s, he was writing you know um, these socially moving songs in fact um i think it was a, a pearl jam did a cover um of his song called masters of war mm. which is just a biting song about you know you people who sit behind desks and drop bombs you know i i, I want to see your blood run drown down the drain i mean intense intense stuff mm. but here we have in his chart we have the jupiter uranus the opening entire I mean, there was no such thing. When, when, when people heard Mr. Tambourine Man by the birds on the radio, no one ever heard those kind of lyrics before. Like these are lyrics that could have been written by a Blake or a Shelley or a Rumi. It was like, what are these doing on AM radio? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so the fact that he has that Jupiter-Uranus conjunction, but Saturn is there and the moon is there, um, and he's he's been on perpetual tour for like fifty some odd years. Um, yeah. They call it the ne- Dylan's Never Ending Tour. And I, I want to say because he has Sagittarius rising, that, that Jupiter is the ruler of his ascendant and takes on a special importance in his chart and in terms of his personality, but also to some extent from like a ancient perspective or Hellenistic perspective, his life direction as well. Yeah, and that makes that Uranus conjunction much more important in his chart, but also characteristic of his personality or it characterizes his personality in some ways. And even though it's out of sign, it's still also less than three degrees, you know, through about three less than four degrees conjunct his sun, the Jupiter is. Yeah, that's a good point. So his sun's at three degrees of Gemini, so it's also pretty close to conjunct that Jupiter as well as that Uranus. But but Dylan is a total Uranian, is my point here, and 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 he fits the bill of being other than normal genius, but totally didn't give a crap as to what anyone thought. In fact, he would do in his, in when he was just becoming famous. He was known for doing two or three interviews um, that were around a release of an album. He would do, you know, these pu- publicity interviews, mm. and he would answer questions 
completely different at each interview that were mutually exclusive. Like when you wrote this song, or I mean, he would make shit up that was just not based on reality. Right. Because he was like the total trickster jokester. This is Uranus again as the, I don't fit in. I don't want to fit in. I don't want to be part of your party. I'm playing my own game and I'm making it up as I go along. Yeah. Um, Anyhow, I'm glad we looked at that chart because he's such a Uranian. Yeah. And and at 81, he came out with a new album with original songs that are as stunning as anything he's ever written. So there's a, it brings up, there's a forward thinkingness to Uranus, but there can also be like an obstinateness sometimes as well. Yeah. Well, they're all in Taurus and it is still widely conjunct Saturn with, with a moon in Taurus too. But yeah. yeah but yes, there, it, it's, it, there, there's an odd rigidity to Uranus that is almost its rigidity in is in its need for change. I know yeah. that sounds crazy. Well, it can be uncompromising to its principles and and to a Uranian that's usually how it's perceived is they're like I'm going to you know stick with my principles and you cannot shake my belief in this thing, but sometimes from an external standpoint looking at that it can come off as like obstinateness or Yeah, or- again it's it gets back to that quantum paradox thing. Uh, he he was an uh, you know he exemplified that paradox. He looked like a, a, and he seemed like a total flake, but he has like something like forty five studio albums in his career. Mm. You know he's shown up like all those planets in Taurus, and he and, and he's a yeah en- enough on that. But it, yeah. that was a good chart to do for a, a closing chart because he is such a Uranian. And anyone who's younger who doesn't know Dylan's work, man, um, you know, do a YouTube run of five or six of his songs and get the lyrics because the guy is more of a poet than a, you know, people go, oh, I can't stand his voice. Well, it's not about his voice. It's about he was, he used music to deliver his poetry. Yeah. His chart, that Mercury placement in late Gemini and, um, is just ability as a writer. It makes me think of another Mer- late Mercury and Gemini writer recently who, Became famous initially because of his writing and ability to communicate, which was um, Anthony Bourdain, who also oh, had yeah. Mercury later in in Gemini. Got it. Yeah, yeah. And that Mercury, I think, is conjunct as descendant, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe. A- yeah, that's correct. What is it descendant at twenty and Mercury at twenty three? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Something else I was going to mention, but that's good. So that's Saturn, Uranus. Um, no, Uranus, 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 Neptune. That's more of a generational thing. We start getting to- Yeah, you know, when I look at those planets, there, unless the pair is connected to a personal planet, it becomes tougher to you know delineate. Right. I mean, I'll I'll often look at okay, so if someone had you know if someone was born in the '60s with the um, Uranus Pluto conjunction, I'll look and see what house it falls in. Mm. You know, um, you know, but it's going to be in the same sign for everyone. And it was around for you know several years, uh, but in, yeah. in Virgo, the Uranus Pluto. Oh, Uranus Pluto. Yeah. Uranus Pluto okay, conjunction yeah. in the mid sixties. The sixties, yeah, like uh, like Kurt Cobain had that on his ascendant, for example. Yeah, and 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 so I'm more interested then in not the fact that Uranus and Pluto are together, although together they would indicate a nonconformist, eccentric, revolutionary expression of the bacchanalian, transformative underworld of Pluto. I mean, that would be one way of saying it. Yeah. Well, there's a Pluto takes things to extremes. We've we've skipped Uranus-Neptune, yeah. we've gone to Uranus-Pluto, but that's fine. But Uranus-Pluto tends to take things to extremes, and Uranus 
uh, has that impulse for for rebellion and freedom. So it's just taking that up to a, the nth degree. But unless that conjunction was aspected to some personal planets, I wouldn't necessarily say that the individual was necessarily connected to that transpersonal energy. Sure. And then we we kind of touched on that at the very beginning when we look at these you know trans Saturnian planets. Um, their importance often becomes how they are wired into the um, into the physical planets, into the seven planets. Yeah. So here's my favorite example of that: is just Kurt Cobain, who had that. Um, so he had the ascendant at 19 degrees of Virgo, and Pluto was at 19 Virgo, and Uranus was at 23 Virgo, and then that was opposite his Mercury, the ruler of the ascendant, which is at 18 degrees of Pisces. As well as yeah. a bunch of other Pisces planets, but um, I always thought that was interesting, partially because we talk about the, the outer planets because they're so slow, being generational influences. But I think there's something to that about how sometimes people that do get that tied into their chart personally through personal planets or by being prominent on angles sometimes become the influencers of generations. There's like the inflection points of the whole energy. I totally right. agree with that. Yeah. I was watching this documentary because apparently this is what I do now in my mid 30s is like Vice is watching all doing running all these like 90s documentaries of like looking back at the 90s and like documenting social trends or I think it's called like the dark side of the 90s is the name of the series but one of them is about Grunge and about the rise of grunge out of the Seattle like indie rock scene in the early 1990s, and how Nirvana's album, once their second album came out, just like changed the shape of the rock scene. And it, it went almost overnight from the like hair bands of the 1980s to suddenly like grunge being the thing within a matter of just like days or weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so, so, so perhaps sometimes people with those placements uh, being able to influence. Entire generations yeah. in some way. So you want to know how how time marches on. You know the cover of the first album of the infinite the infant floating in the water. Yeah, yeah. That kid is suing them for you. right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's, it's weird though because he's, he's suing them because he asked them to be in an art exhibit of his a few months ago and they they didn't get back to him so now he's suing them. Yeah. So, um, well, it's funny generational. We just you know the twentieth anniversary of nine yeah. eleven just happened um, within the past week and. You know, there's astrologers now that are practicing astrologers that were born after 9/11 that I know through like Twitter or around that time. So you know, needing to explain cultural references is something that's new that I'm getting used to. So that's why I was laughing about that earlier with helping you explain who Bob Dylan is. Yeah, yeah. All right, I've got to explain like who Kurt Cobain is. You're pretty pretty soon. <laughs> All right, so we we did Uranus Pluto. Sort of, not really, but I wanted to not skip over Uranus Neptune because that, that was a favorite research topic of mine at one point because there was a conjunction of Uranus Neptune that yeah. happened in the early 90s in yeah. 1992 and 1993. And it's funny to go back and look at um, like schedules for conferences and magazine, astrology magazines from back then because astrologers were talking about like what's going to happen and what does this mean for astrology of the world in general. And there was this really interesting thing that happened in 1992 and 1993 is that there was a group of astrologers that met at a Conference 1992. 92, yeah. Yeah, you said 82. Okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah. 92, 93. Yeah. And they ended up um, forming Project Hindsight and yes. the movement to go back and look at older forms of astrology. And I always thought that was interesting when I got into Hellenistic astrology in the mid 2000s. And I, I went back in history with that conjunction and noticed that every time Uranus Neptune conjoined, 
there was always a revival of older forms of astrology, which were then synthesized with whatever the prevailing modern astrology was at that point in time. Yeah, yeah. And that's since been what's happened. And I kind of figured out in the mid 2000s that that was, again, what was going to happen with us. But I've always wondered, I can kind of understand why that is with Uranus, but I've always been a little bit uncertain about why it was a Uranus-Neptune conjunction that coincides with that in the history of astrology going back two or 3,000 years. Um, but it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of maybe giving us some insight either into the nature of astrology or the nature of Uranus and Neptune. Or the nature of Neptune itself. Right, exactly. Which is, I think, of all the planets, sometimes Neptune is the um, arguably the most Mm, the least understood of the outer planets, mm. um, you know. Even though, you know, we all think we know what it is. It's part of its meaning is that it's not understood, right? You know, and um, yeah, it. <clears throat> yeah, I don't. I don't have a quick, easy answer for that. But I know that um, before uh, Jim Lewis died, um, the lecture that he was on, doing on the circuit that I heard him give actually in Seattle. This must have been. Must have been in 92, maybe 92 or 93. It was around the time of that, you know, of that conjunction. And he was the founder of um, astrocartography or the inventor of astrocartography. Yeah. And, um, and, and an all around brilliant, brilliant astrologer. And, um, and his, the lecture that he was doing was on the long term cycles of, um, of Uranus and Neptune. And how every fourth cycle Saturn was in the picture as a conjunction, okay. and that those were the architectural change points in the development of what the centers of civilization were. Hmm. It was a fascinating lecture. I don't know that I can recreate it all without having thought about it for years and years and years. Um, but you know, but but the Uranus Neptune thing is interesting because there have been a few times where it's followed a Uranus-Pluto conjunction fairly closely. Hmm. One of those times was 1965 to 1992. So within a Saturn cycle, you had Uranus conjoining with Pluto, which was the outermost planet in the solar system. And then you had in 92, 93, or 92, no, 92-93, you had Uranus joining with Neptune, which was the outermost planet in the solar system at that time. Hmm. Well, it turns out that in 1455 there was a Saturn, there was a Uranus-Pluto conjunction in 1455 that is connected with um, the um, Gutenberg Bible. Okay, I mean that's the that that's the um, uh, the archetype of what that breakthrough was in consciousness was the the first automated printing press, movable type. Mm-hmm. There was a Uranus-Neptune conjunction while Neptune was the outermost planet in 1489 Okay, within a Saturn cycle. And 1485 was the, um, was the uh, Gutenberg press, and Gutenberg thought there was only one book that would ever need to be printed on it, and that was the Bible. Right, but that ended up being the beginning of printing as we know it. And in 1489... Um, Marsilio Ficino's translations of Plato in Venice were printed for the first time, and arguably that dispersion of 
that information is what created the Protestant Reformation ultimately was the availability of this non-doctrine, non-Catholic doctrine that the church was not happy with. Mm, okay. Now, the reason why that's relevant is because Neptune has to do with the dispersion of the energy. Okay. You take that to 1965-66, IBM came out with its System 36, Model 36, I think it was. Um, that was the first self-contained business computer that you could buy, and it had the software basically built into it to run a business, big mm -hmm. business. And IBM thought that there would only be a few customers for it, or you know, specific customers, and that is the largest corporations and governments. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the Uranus-Neptune dispersion, and you have the World Wide Web appearing. Right. And you have um, all of a sudden personal computers that everyone has one, and it becomes the, oh my God, this isn't just about government and business. In fact, it may be the downfall of nationalism and singular ideologies. Hmm. There's a correspondence, and I think we get to the flavor of what the Saturn, I'm sorry, I keep saying Saturn, you get to the flavor of what the Uranus Neptune is and that it disperses the energy. It's like, there's no boundary here. Right. I mean, Uranus powers through the wall hmm. of Saturn. Neptune says, you know, what wall? I don't see a wall. You see a wall? Right. Yeah, nothing here. Yeah. That's perfect. Okay. Um, well, that kind of brings things full circle. We skipped over, we've mentioned them in passing though, like Mercury and the sun and moon more or less, right? Yeah. Mercury is, 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 is a good one. I mean, because Mercury has such an affinity with, um, such an affinity to Uranus. Right. And again, because Mercury is considered to be, you know, the, and actually it goes Mercury, Jupiter, Uranus. They're not act octaves. But there's Mercury, the lower mind, Jupiter, the higher mind, and Uranus, the distribution of that through the nervous system and through the now the World Wide Web, which is arguably an exo-nervous system. Mm. And so um, Mercury, Uranus, someone who thinks fast, clever, right. beyond belief. There, um, I had... Um, um, I had a couple of Mercury Uranus things noted before, but I they they disappeared somewhere. Yeah, thinks fast, speaks fast, um, fast communication, fast thinking. Um, sometimes thinks outside of the box or communicates in a way that's innovative or eccentric in some way. So eccentric communication. Um, yes, eccentric, and again, it's communi it's communication that is genius, radical, different, and it doesn't necessarily fit in. Um, yeah, doesn't necessarily fit in. Uh, okay, here, here, here's what I was looking for. Um, we have uh, Johannes Kepler with Uranus conjunct Mercury, Mercury conjunct Uranus. Okay. Um, uh, Oscar Wilde with Mercury opposed Uranus. Um, lots of writers, I mean, Charles Dickens with Uranus, um, with the Uranus Mercury, um, oh. uh, James Hillman with Uranus conjunct Mercury. James Hillman being known, I think, um, in our world as Rick Tarnas's teacher um, or cohort, maybe um, companion. Um, and that um, Mercury Uranus conjunction in Kepler's charts important because he, uh, he was actually a, a Gemini rising, so Mercury is the ruler of his ascendant. So once again, just sometimes putting the focus on how 
if that planet is closely configured to the ruler of the Ascendant, it can make it even more important in the chart or the life as a whole. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you have people like Charlie Chaplin with Mercury opposed Uranus. Um, I mean, I'm, there's a, a long list here, but these, these are people who are <clears throat> clever and who think fast. Galileo had Uranus, a Mercury square Uranus. Mm. Bobby Fischer had Mercury square Uranus, a chess player, very eccentric. <clears throat> Um, Marcel Marceau, who was a very well-known French pantomimist, mimic, whatever you call that, he had uh, Mercury conjunct Uranus. Mm. Um, yeah, so th um, those are those are some some people. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of technological innovation in there. Um, what about so we mentioned um, Sun Uranus? You mentioned Ram Dass as being a good example of that. Kepler. Kind of has a, a wide yeah. one as well. Sun, yeah. Sun Uranus conjunction in Capricorn. Sigmund Freud. Freud, okay. Um, Percy Shelley, who we talked about and who wrote Prometheus Unbound. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so. De Descartes, um, Galileo had your um, Sun square Uranus. Um, Descartes had Sun conjunct Uranus. Isaac Newton had Sun sextile Uranus. Um, these are all breakthrough thinkers. Um, um, <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson, your son square Uranus. Um, yeah, that's enough. I mean, but again, these are people whose vitality and energy were in some way just outside of the box. They could not be contained by quote unquote normal. Right. Something about their very spirit that was sort of Uranian or, or, uh, breathed in the, the sort of spirit of Uranus. Yeah. And, and exuded that. Um, and then finally, moon Uranus. Well, with the moon, it's interesting because we look at we, we look at Freud, who had the sun Uranus, and yet Jung, who was arguably m more, m I don't mean in gender, but more feminine in his approach to, the, to, to archetypes, Jung had um, the moon square Uranus. Okay. Um, and, um, but, but, People like um, George Bernard Shaw, a brilliant, um, you know, um, uh, essayist playwright, um, um, had Uranus conjunct the moon, um, or the moon conjunct Uranus. Um, Oscar Wilde, who I mentioned earlier, had the moon square Uranus. So there's something, you know, in a modern context, the moon is often associated with the the emotions and the emotional state of the person on some or some internal level, and something about that having a, a Uranian quality to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> there was a couple of others here that I thought were good that I seemed uh, Lord Byron, who was a contemporary of Shelley's, but another one of the Romantic poets, um, had um, the moon conjunct Uranus. Mm. They're softer and more, you know, more connected, perhaps, with anima than animus. Okay, um, cool. Well, I think that covers all the planetary combinations. Uh, I am not going to have us run through, make us run through the Uranus through the houses. Oh, good, because, because you already have that on another recording. Anyway. Yeah. So, episode people can check that on episode one ninety seven of the Astrology Podcast. That's titled something like Uranus transits through the houses. And that'll give you some idea, not just in terms of transits, but also in terms of natal placements as well, what Uranus in the houses can mean. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think we did it. Thank you for joining <laughs> me for this today. <laughs> that we, was did, a, we did it twice. 
We did. We did a, a, this was like a three hour and 20 minute run. And that was after like a initial false start and hour delay of the power going out. I'll throw that in maybe here at the end as a little outtake, uh, just to show you what happened and what, what Uranus is like and what happens when you invoke Uranus is sometimes you have to expect the unexpected and be able to roll with the unexpected. I think it would be fun. It would be fun to post that not with the rest and just go, here it is, right. leave, leave it for a that day. That can be the episode. That's episode like 225 <laughs> of the Astrology Podcast. And it's just like blip 40 seconds long. It's like me introducing the episode and the power goes out and then I just like roll credits. Yeah. 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 That would be good. All right. Well, um, thanks a lot for joining me. Um, tell me, you have a YouTube channel, which is like rapidly growing and uh, has become very popular, especially for your your forecast, where you're regularly posting forecasts for uh, the weeks and yeah, months. I don't to do come. a weekly; I do a monthly. On monthly, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I do I, I do more material for Patreon subscribers, but my public YouTube channel is basically a monthly forecast. And although you and I talked about this before, I didn't realize it's just youtube.com slash Rick Levine. Yeah. It gets you there. That's concise. I like um, that. And, and if you want to find out more about my other offerings, uh, Patre- uh, patreon.com surprise slash Rick Levine. Perfect. And, um, and I do write a daily um, with a graphic and, and a daily blurb. That's typically a short, maybe 200, 250 words a day. It's not by sign, but it's like, <clears throat> the weather report mm. and um and those are on instagram <clears throat> excuse me my voice is finally going those are on instagram and facebook and on instagram it's what a surprise you know uh rick levine is okay. the account and on facebook it's facebook facebook.com uh slash rick levine and you're one of the most experienced writers of like forecasts that I've know that I know because you've been doing it for years, but also because you always have this um, poetic quality to your writings that's like very unique and very. Um, Thank you. I've yeah. been doing it for 20, 20, uh, 20 years, just okay. over twenty years. Yeah, and it, it makes a difference, like having experience, because it's not something that you initially just like know how to do, even if you're really good at astrology. You've been doing it for a while, like writing a forecast. For a day or for a person is is a unique skill. Well, to and learn. there's a story there that actually, if anyone wants to hear it, we did it on one of the early podcasts. Right. I don't know what the episode number is. Yeah. Um. But um. But yeah, I've been writing. I've been writing something astrological every day for 20 years. Yeah, we did an early. It was like episode 40 something of the Astrology Podcast. There's only an audio version, but it's on the podcast website. If you just go at Astrology Podcast Rick Levy, God, you'll that's find like it. being an early investor of Microsoft or something, being having been on episode 40 something. Yeah, you got in at the ground level. <laughs> so let's see. It was about writing a horoscope column. And I'm just trying to find. There it is. Episode eighty, writing uh, a horoscope column with Rick Levine. Yeah, eighty is kind of kind of late. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's embarrassing for an Aries to be yeah. at eighty. Aries stellium. So it's was, it was still twenty sixteen. So yeah. I was still pretty early in the run of the forecast. Maybe there's like astrologers mm-hmm. already mm-hmm. that have been born since then. All I know that are pra- practicing <laughs> uh, already at this point. All right. Thanks a lot for joining me as my like second or third guest back in the studio. Uh, as it's the a great studio. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for the work that you do. I mean, n- not just for 
the fact that you do it for yourself, but what you do for the community and for astrology, I think is very important. I mean, I think you're really doing some important stuff that's really creating archives and laying, laying groundwork that is, is very important. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it, and uh, thanks for helping to start Kepler and uh, being there <laughs> at different points because it's always been fun seeing you and hanging out with you uh, back then when we used to stay up late at night at the Kepler symposiums and talk and debate about signs versus causes. I still stay like up that. late at night. Okay, well, we'll have to do that <laughs> again tonight and go get some dinner. All right, thanks a lot for joining me. Thank um, you. Thanks everyone for watching this episode of the Astrology Podcast or listening to it. Um, please be sure to like this video, subscribe, leave a comment below, whatever. And we'll see you again next time. Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Rick Levine about the meaning of the planet Uranus in astrology. Uh, so, hey, Rick, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for being here. It's not only being uh, on the show, it's in the show. Yes. It's uh, wonderful to be here in Denver. So you are actually visiting. You're driving through town on the way to uh, a little conference and, and a vacation on the East Coast, and you decided to swing through Denver. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to uh, record a discussion as part of my series on the planets on the first outer planet in the series, which is Uranus. So I've done up through Mars at this point, then I'm going to do Saturn here in the next few weeks. We're getting a little ahead of, ahead of myself, a little ahead of the times, but I think that's appropriate for Uranus. <laughs> yes. Okay. You cannot make that up. We oh, literally just had a complete power outage in the entire building at the beginning of trying to record the Uranus. That, that is like, uh, yeah. I think that has to be left on right up to the blip and then a reintroduction. And uh, you have to start everything anew. That's like amazing. Yeah. Um, all right. Okay. Get some lights on. Yeah. No One more. of the questions is, was that the entire building or was that just here for some reason? Like flipping at a circuit breaker or something? Did any, are any of these still running? No, all our cameras died. Everything died. Yeah. Hopefully nothing got fried in the process. What time is it exactly? 4.58. So that must have happened at like 4.57. You want to write that down? Yep, I do. Isn't Saturn like right on the ascendant right now? It is. It's at 7. The ascendant's at 7.12. <laughs> and Saturn's at 7.21. Oh, my. We started with Saturn right on the ascendant. That'll teach us. Yeah. <laughs> Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to all the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, Kristen Otero, Sanjay Srihari, and Rachel Stalvi. For more information about how to become a patron and get benefits such as early access to new episodes or private bonus episodes only available to patrons, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Special thanks also to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, 
AstroGold astrology software for the Mac operating system, which is available at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code astropodcast15 for a 15% discount. The Portland School of Astrology, available at portlandastrology.org. AstroGold astrology app for iPhone and Android, which is also available at astrogold.io. And finally, the Solar Fire Astrology software program for Windows, which you can get from alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount.